Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels Horror Video Game Podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week, we're joined once again by Newsweek's video game reporter and friend of the show, Harrison Abbott, for a spoiler-filled chat about the bleak and brutal world of Naughty Dog's sequel to The Last of Us, The Last of Us Part Two which picks up four years after the original game as Ellie hunts those responsible for turning her life upside down across the rain-soaked and infested landscape of Seattle, Washington. And again, an extra warning that we will be discussing all manner of spoilers. So without further ado, Harrison, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. It's uh, somewhat fitting that we are uh, recording our Last of Us Part 2 episode on Valentine's Day as uh, this is a game that is at the heart of it all, all about love in a way. Uh, But before we dive into the sprawling post-apocalyptic epic that is this uh, sequel, and uh, somewhat of a controversial sequel at that, but we'll be diving into that later, um, I figured we could all go around and kind of highlight an element that we thought made the original The Last of Us a standout from other zombie games of the uh, era that it was released in originally. So Harrison, why don't we start with you? Cool. Um, Yeah, so I had a really weird relationship with the first Last of Us because it came out around about a time when I had kind of fallen out of love with video games. I, I must have been like 16 or so. And I wasn't playing that much anymore. And The Last of Us came out. I didn't play it. I didn't really know anything about it. And uh, around Christmas, um, people were just asking me for stuff to buy me because they didn't know what to get me. And I said, I've heard that this Last of Us game is good. I didn't know anything about it at all. I just heard that it was good. I didn't know a single thing about the story. I didn't know why it was supposedly good. I just, I had heard that it had got good review scores. And so I played it. And it was this magical kind of experience that I'll never have again, I don't think, where I experienced something completely blind and was surprised by everything that happened in it and I was totally blown away and I think what elevates it for me from just a standard zombie game or above most games in my opinion is it's not the story because the story's fairly standard stuff there's lots of uh, post-apocalyptic stories out there about escorting someone from A to B or uh, about a sort of gruff Uh, male protector looking after some kind of special child but what made this unique wasn't the story, it was the way that the story was told and it was the way that the characters were written and it was the fact that after about two hours I was playing not to reach an end goal not to experience set pieces or to uh, get achievements or trophies even I was playing because I actually wanted to know what happened to these people Um, I can pinpoint the specific moment and it's when in the first one uh, there's a part where Joel and Ellie they they, uh, fully restore a car driving along and they have this this jokey conversation where Ellie finds like this old gay porn mag and pretends that she doesn't know why the pages are stuck together uh, to like tease Joel and then they have a conversation about like the music that he's he's got like an old cassette tape that he's put in the car radio and it's just this conversation between these two they're not talking about the plot they're not talking about what you need to do in the next gameplay section it's just two people talking and hanging out and in that moment I kind of realized I really want to know what happens to this this pair of characters and I'm playing 
to find out what happens to them. I'm not playing for a distraction or I'm not playing for the reasons I would normally have played a video game back then. And it kind of opened my eyes to what, to how video games can be a storytelling medium that not just on par with cinema, but that can surpass cinema or surpass TV or even novels. So that was kind of what stuck out to me about the first Last of Us. It wasn't the story, it wasn't even the gameplay, it was the characters and how attached to them I became. You and I uh, definitely share, sounds like, a similar experience in that, like, I was in college when I got around to playing The Last of Us, the original one, and it was at a point where, you know, I was more caught up in other things I was into, like movies or just, like, being a dumb college student running around and hadn't been playing games as frequently as I had been. And it was very much the same thing where, like, I came to it and at first I was kind of like, okay, this seems very kind of stock standard, like you had said, in terms of, like, okay, here's this guy, there's a pandemic, he's got to protect somebody. And then you have that Joel opening and you see what happens to his daughter and all these things. And I was like, holy shit, this is in the first, whatever it is, 15, 20 minutes of the game. And it completely caught me off guard just in terms of like, yeah, I had experienced obviously maybe like an emotional connection to characters in games before or enjoyed the writing of certain characters in games before. But to have something that heavy happen so suddenly, but also the way that it's carried they allow you to kind of coexist in that world for just long enough that you actually do get a sense of attachment to characters, even though, again, if that entire opening of the original is, I don't know, 20 minutes long, if that, and it carries a weight that feels far more significant than just being like a plot device, right? And I think that it's something that carries over from the original to obviously part two, but I mean, like getting that watch and having that moment and then having the significance of the watch that Joel's daughter gives him on it i think i believe it's a birthday yeah. gift and then just what he goes through ellie that whole arc which like you had said in the original game is the structure of that plot is not necessarily all that remarkable or that memorable but it is more just about especially like it's a credit to neil Druckmann's writing and whatnot and that he's able to humanize characters and make them personable mm-hmm. seemingly almost instantaneously to a degree that it catches you off guard that even if you're not playing for like oh, I have to see if they're able to make it from Boston to Seattle and all these things, which feels very familiar. You want to just be in that car or that truck scene with them, and you want to be a fly on the wall in whatever room these characters are in to a certain point for however many hours that experience goes on. And that was, for me, kind of what rekindled my love of and kind of reminded me the potential of games. And if anything... The original Last of Us made me want more from games, right? It's kind of that idea that that being one of those pillar games of a console generation that it's like, well, that conversation has, of course, been growing in terms of like maturity in storytelling and video games and the subject matter and things like that. But this felt like a much bigger deal than, I don't know, it just felt like a big, a big deal to the degree that everybody in my inner circle should have been talking about it. And it was like the type of game that I couldn't shut up about, but I'll, uh, I'll stop rambling. Neil, what was uh, the element of the last of us for you that really stood out from other zombie games that you were playing at the time? I mean, the key thing was knowing who it came from, uh, being, you know, being naughty dog who had already had this sort of up and down relationship over the years. You know, <laughs> I despised crash bandicoot, loved Jack and Daxter until they made the sequel and you know uncharted 
didn't care didn't care for the first game second game really enjoyed third game I had a lot of love for and you know I started to get back into the games and this sounded interesting as an idea I was on like uh, forums a lot trophy forums a lot at that point and so I wasn't as yeah. enamoured with the game as I thought it would be just because the way people talk about stuff on forums especially in like you know console centric forums and so I, I kind of thought, well, I don't have a lot of money at the minute, you know, and I just, I'll wait it out and like that. My mate happened to have the copy and he was like, he finished it. And I was like, well, can I borrow it for a couple of days and see how I go? Did that. And yeah, just absolutely floored me with what it did. You know, I think what you were saying about the story being very simplistic is true. So many video games, you know, yeah. even it, the great ones, because the story isn't the point you know all the time with these games it always ends up being you know they can tell simple stories because they offer something else which is that you are involved in this story it's why going back to the 90s stuff with the flimsiest stories you could end up invested in because you controlled it to some degree or you had the illusion of control over that you know maybe not the big beats but you get to choose when you find where if you're going to go scavenge for this or if you're going to go that direction or this direction it's beautiful like that um the other things that really did it for me was just the games it reminded me of and games i hadn't really seen much of elsewhere in a few years one was manhunt um something about like the last of us just brought back manhunt vibes yeah. brilliantly i think it's just this whole desecrated world you know come to shit sort of thing and you know the violence of it um which i think the last of us part two just really does just out manhunt manhunt in that regard so. <laughs> turns it up to 11 and yeah the best way possible yeah the other thing that really intrigued me though was this uh the whole fungus thing and because one of my favorite books mm-hmm. is which i brought up this week actually when jay was looking for book recommendations was uh the 80s book by Harry Adam Knight called The Fungus, which is about where they start trying to solve world hunger by creating the super fungus to, you know, they can generate at a great rate to feed people. And of course it goes wrong, blah, blah, blah. And not only does it like make toadstools grow to stupid sizes, but, you know, it, it infects people. You, I mean, having athlete's foot could pretty much just end up with your foot being a mushy mess. And as a result of it, and the worst of people affected ended up, you know, being taken over completely by the fungus and like, you know, in agony and they, you know, more so than you see in The Last of Us. But it's one of those where seeing that in a game was like, oh, this is something I've not really seen in a game that I wanted to see from a book. I had this same thing we talked about it before, Jay, with A uh, Plague Tale about, you know, James Herbert's yeah. The Rats. Seeing like a swarm mm. of rats used like that in a game was like oh wow yeah this i like this so you know i like seeing these books i grew up with getting represented in these small ways like that and yeah it's just those were two brilliant factors to it a third factor that really made it for me in terms of influence um was sos the final escape which is also known as disaster report in america which i love yeah um cheesy sort of you know natural disaster sort of game happening where you uh, backpack on manage your supplies you know get through these set piece moments and you are just going through this broken city and it's like and it just gave me that vibe and both games do you know and I really enjoy that aspect of it where you just feel like any minute the floor you're on could 
cave under you and not in the uncharted sense, you know, where it just it's there for the sake of it and it becomes a running joke that oh the floors give way again. It's this the world itself you can understand, you look at it and you go, Yeah, this this really could just break apart at any at any moment. And yeah, I, I really do wish at some point they do think, yeah, let's make a disaster game, you know, like that in the, the vein of like old disaster movies, because I think they could really do like a big budget version of Disaster Report themselves quite easily and tell a compelling story with that. So yeah, it, these things all sort of mushed together to make it a game I really, really enjoyed and I could totally appreciate where all the plaudits were coming from. You can see the shortcomings, obviously. Um, but those shortcomings exist in all Naughty Dog games, I think, for the sake of telling a story. And whether you like the story or not, I think they still do things in some really subtle ways that I don't think you really get in a lot of big budget games. The ending of The Last of Us being key to that, I think, where, you know, it's up there with some of the big pop culture things in cinema in terms of how misunderstood it is as an ending. You know, it's like, it, you know, it's it's a fight club in so many ways that, you know, the, or mm. Scarface, where people are like, oh yeah, the ending's cool, the ending's this. It's like, yeah, but you've completely misread it and hence a lot of the controversy that went into the second game was <laughs> yeah. because of people misunderstanding the end of the first game uh, and right. we, you know if you understand that ending properly as it is meant to be understood it really does enhance the story of the last of us part two yeah and with the original game too i think it's the type of thing that the shortcomings whether or not you're familiar with naughty dog games in the past it's the game it always came for me at least from like the gaminess of games yeah. which is the reality of that and they never interfered with the elements of that that stood out from the last i don't know decade of games or yeah. the, just in general in terms of like being this pivotal example of the types of story mature stories that can be told in personable stories even when it's set in this fantastical horrifying world that nobody can relate to which in and of itself i think is pretty remarkable but I guess that that leads me into uh, our discussion today about The Last of Us Part Two, And while there was a lot of controversy surrounding this game, the one that I think we should focus on primarily, because a lot of the chatter and noise around that were sort of the more immature side of fit or bigoted side of certain uh, portion of gamers and things like that that weren't happy with some of the subject matter that was being mm. tackled within the game. And I'm sure we'll touch upon that, but... I think we should start with the element that was sort of more rooted in the controversy surrounding the gameplay or the narrative angle, and that being that within the first, I don't know, what is it, two hours, uh, Joel Miller gets killed, right? And everybody assumed that, oh, well, for the most yeah. part, people assumed like, oh, this is going to be a, a game that is somewhat similar to the original in that, okay, we're going to be rejoining familiar characters, and it's going to be an experience that is building off of the original. No. And then, of course, he gets killed. And it is not his story. And I'm curious for you guys, and we'll obviously uh, unpack this in some, what I assume will be great length. <laughs> I mean, for you, uh, Harrison, what was that reaction initially for you in terms of not only getting to see this character that I think we all agree is beloved amongst us and the fans of this game, but more importantly, what was your reaction to the realization that this is not going to be Joel's story, this is going to be Ellie's story, and then inevitably we're going to get another facet of that about halfway through the game? I had a really, again, much like how I did with the first one, I had a really unique experience with this because I had heard 
I don't even remember the exact context, but I had mm. seen a tweet at some point about how the plot for The Last of Us 2 had leaked. And at that moment, I <laughs> muted every conceivable word I could think of on Twitter. I basically didn't go on any websites or social media for like, I don't know, was it like two months yeah. between the leaks and the game yeah. coming out? It, it felt like it was a while, uh, but that might have been because <laughs> I was avoiding it. Um, and so I was the like maybe the one person in the world that played this game, not knowing that that happened, not, not knowing anything other than what was in the actual marketing materials. And so when that happened, Lee, the, this two, you was Ellie at his grave, and I had like the remote in my hand for just like 30 seconds, like without moving, because I was just processing that that had actually happened, and I have no idea where the game is going from here on out. And at that moment, I was just so, so pleased because my biggest fear going into The Last of Us Part 2 was that it would be The yeah. Last of Us again. That was the when, as soon as the sequel was announced, my initial reaction was, I don't even know if I want one, as much as I love that first game, because it ends so perfectly. And you have to do something different, and you have to do something brave and daring to justify a sequel even existing. And within the first, like, hour, it had done that, and I felt like, <laughs> okay, good. And now I have no idea where it's going. I think it's, it's interesting, though, that some people talk about it as, like, I've seen complaints that the first game was not Ellie and Joel's story, it was Joel's story, and so it feels wrong to have a sequel that isn't Joel's story. I feel like this is 100% Joel's story. Like, it's, it's, it's quite a strange reaction to me when people talk about this game as if Joel isn't, as if it isn't 100% yeah, about it's... Joel and the fallout of Joel's actions. He's, he is, even though his literal screen time isn't that much, although it is because of the flashbacks, it's distributed throughout, and you still get a decent amount of time with it. There isn't a scene that goes by where his, like, spectre isn't just looming over everything, whether you're playing as Ellie, and it's all over his death or if you're playing as Abby it's 100, 100 in the first game and it feels to me like a really logical uh, conclusion that the man who did that would this is what would end up happening to him it feels very natural to me which is again why I find it kind of strange when people talk about it it gets called the last Jedi of us all the time because like the last Jedi it's the people who don't like it feel like it goes out of its way to subvert expectations for the sake of it. And I genuinely do not understand that because it feels so organic and natural mm. to me that this is what would happen to Joel after the first game. And as Neil said, there is there is an element as well of people maybe just either misunderstanding the first game or mm. misremembering it. Mm -hmm. Because... All the way throughout that first game, they make it clear that Joel was not a good man. He was a man that you like, that you can empathize with, and that to an extent, you agree with some of the things he does, even though you know they're wrong, because you don't want to see Ellie die at the end of the first one either. But throughout that first game, there's constant references to the stuff Joel did 
yeah. that we never saw. Uh, there's a bit in that first game where um, they you, you come across a hunter trap and Joel recognizes that it's trapped straight away and Ellie asks, how did you know? Mm. And he says, because I've been on the other mm. side of that before. Yeah. Like, I have been the bad guy in this situation. And Tommy talks about how they had nightmares over the things that Joel made them do in the initial years of the outbreak. Because you don't see that stuff in the first game, I think yeah. people forget about it. And they just remember the moments where Joel is a nice dad and he hangs around with the giraffes mm. and he looks after Ellie. And they forget about these references to things that we don't see that suggest he was a very, very, very deeply, deeply flawed man. So when his sins catch up with him in the second game, it feels like a completely logical um, logical development. And I, I was completely in from that moment because I had no idea where the rest of the game was going to go. Yeah, you know, I came to this at another period of my life where... I was not playing games as much as I am now and, you know, it kind of have these peaks and valleys of how frequently I'm playing games and whatnot, but I had had it unfortunately spoiled for me over Twitter just randomly, but at the time I wasn't playing games all that frequently, so I was kind of like, oh, there's that game that I really enjoyed. That kind of sucks, but I don't really care because I'm not, I was like you in the sense that I didn't need a sequel really for it because I was like, it's such a fantastic game on this pedigree. I don't know how anything could complement that. And so when it came time to actually sit down and play it after having made a point to revisit uh, the original game and then jumping right into that, I was again, though, reminded of my investment in these characters and how, you know, it gets thrown around a lot in terms of talking about games people are fond of. Like, you love these characters, you love this story, but it's like, it's very easy to fall in love with those characters for as complex as they are for all the reasons that you just mentioned. I mean, it would, and I was the same way where I was like, oh, there's Joel. He's that like nice man that took care of that girl and brought her where she needed to go. And they, you know, they petted a giraffe once or twice or something <laughs> like that. But as soon as I picked up the game again and was given a refresher, and then I was obviously playing the sequel, and you get to that moment of him getting beaten to death with a golf club by Abby, it's like, well, this is the only natural next step in his story. Like, I don't see how it would have... If anything, it would have undone a lot of the goodwill that they had earned with the original game if he just keeps getting away with all the awfulness that he did during the pandemic and all of those things at the height of the outbreak and whatnot. It's it's the Breaking Bad thing where there are people who don't understand that eventually Walter White has to pay for the things he's done because they don't realize that Walter White has done anything wrong. (laughs) It's the same thing with this. I think... Part of the part of the controversy is probably the nature of how he dies. Yeah, they can go out fighting. Right. He dies slowly, kind of crying and and in a position of weakness. And for those people who kind of idolize the character of Joel, they they kind of see that as. I, I guess if they, without wanting to get like too critical of, of these, of make it too personal. If they see themselves in Joel. Mm then they probably don't like the idea of seeing Joel go out that way. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. But also, I think that if anything, it also speaks to the fact, and it's actually reinforced in what he says when he gets like he gets shot by Abby in the knee and then clearly he's defenseless and he's not going to be able to fight back. Yeah. And he's like, save whatever practice speech that you have and like, let's get this over with, which if anything reinforces that he always knew this day was going to come, which 
I would think like yeah. that was the line that really sold me on that because I was again kind of like having it spoiled but not really caring at that point and then coming to it a year after the release and I was like I wonder how I'll feel about that moment and I was kind of like hesitant after finishing mm-hmm. and replaying the original and diving right into the sequel because I was like well I don't this character's too strong to kill off and maybe it was a little naive of me to assume he wasn't going to have a large impact on the the sequel and pop up eventually but it really was this idea that this is the only natural conclusion and like you had said his specter is in every single scene of the game that moves forwards and that character is so profound that he's able to have essentially a continuation of his story that he is not a obviously playable part of for a majority of that experience yeah neil how about you how did the uh the sort of subverting of the audience expectations and changing the central protagonist. Uh, how did that land for you initially? Um, I always went on the assumption that left, but the left behind DLC was the reason you are getting to learn more about Ellie is that she would be the forefront of this, the next story that even if Joel was around, mm. he'd be tagging along with her and not vice versa because they give you that taste right. in the first game of her and how she learns to deal with problems and have to survive in this world. Uh, so, I don't know, it always felt like that was the way they were going to go. She was really popular in her own right. Um, again, one of those things that a lot of the people that were annoyed about the second game's uh, ideas and themes is that, that they probably didn't play that DLC or don't remember it because it, it does often feel like that. Because, you know, yes. that, that DLC that makes it very clear that she likes girls and that's she discovers that quite early and that bit gets missed in amongst that. And, you know, a lot of that early leak that came out you were talking about as well um, misinterpreted a lot of the story because it wasn't like a complete leak. So, you know, they were they got mixed up with two characters, which were Lev and uh, Abby, and thought they were the same character. And so, of course, people were making a big deal about that sex scene that appears later in the game, that that got leaked. And, yeah, they were pretty much having an outrage moment because of things like that. So... It's a game that just felt like it was on uh, hiding to nothing in that regard because partly that's Sony's fault in recent years because their games are increasingly the Marvel universe of games. You know, they are pretty much trying to play. Everything is getting safer and more like, yeah, this is perfectly fine. It looks lovely. This plays well, blah, blah, but it's nothing. It's not nourishing, you know, in a way. And this feels like a nice abrasive sort of thing you know this um you know if you had middle ground between say horizon zero dawn and this you say it'd be god of war the, the reboot because that's another game that takes you know a guy who's got a horrible horrible past that you very much know about <laughs> and tries to sort of humanize him and make him more and more like likable but you know but there you you get it from the outset it's like yeah we know he's an arsehole but there are probably a whole generation of people who played that game that never yeah. got that you know and this is a guy who murdered his own family whether he meant to or not and then just went on murdering all of reality to um, get over it it's like, so yeah and even he got his comeuppance to a degree in that game in that sense so it felt logical that Joel was going to pay for his actions and that ending, if you're going to make a sequel, you have to answer that question that Ellie answered and have that be the setup for the next game. It had to be mm-hmm. the consequences of that betrayal of 
that Joel makes, you know, of humanity effectively, whether right or wrong, in his eyes, you know, he could clearly say and read. You, anyone could clear, clearly reason if someone they loved was going to die for a cause, and they weren't sure that, about it. They could say, "Well, what if it doesn't work? I'd have done this for nothing, and I've lost someone for nothing again." And he's already gone and done all these terrible, unspeakable things in the past for that very reason, because he lost someone and he doesn't want to go back down that path. But he doesn't see that he's never left it. You know, still, because the world has changed so much. And so, yes, that ending, when appreciated properly, you get it straight away that it's got to be that way. And if it hadn't, and he had lived and they'd never touched upon that, it would have been, yeah, now it feels like a sequel for sequel's sake. Whereas this, you know, calling it part two, it really does feel like a part two because you are mm-hmm. basically continuing on from the consequences and the echoes of that end scene. You know, So this is where I was very satisfied with it. And if anything, I was more satisfied by the switchery and then happens at the halfway point, you know, as well mm-hmm. with Abby. Because that, to me, yeah. feels like that's a story you should be telling, you know, first and foremost. I get why not, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, th- I think that really does end up feeling like the true story of all this, you know, as much as it's Ellie's. Ellie, become, Ellie in her guilt, becomes Joel, effectively, in not listening to the group. She's, these years, we don't see Joel doing what he does is what Ellie is effectively doing. She's learned, and that's how she's yeah. processing grief because she's never had to process grief that way, you know, and now she's old enough and strong enough to do something about it, she does, but and she can't let go. And while it doesn't cost her the same way that it costs Joel, it costs her in other ways, you know, because not everyone's willing to put up with that bullshit because not everyone else is like Joel. And, and she discovers that by the end of the game. Yeah, there's a, it's a credit to Neil Druckmann's writing, and I'm going to describe it as being uh, manipulative, but I mean that in the best sense mm-hmm. possible, in that they do a fantastic job across both games of manipulating mm-hmm. the audience into having this perceived image of people, while at the same time plainly telling us that like a majority of the people you meet in these games are not good people, and we've obviously touched upon this, and that most of these people are pieces of shit, but we build this... uh, ideology of them to a certain extent just based off of what we see which if anything you know talk about missing the point the idea that for me that you would finish the first game and you would see Joel as being this like righteous guy after you've been told for the last I don't know 15 hours 20 hours about all the awful shit that he probably did and yeah it's great that he is getting to I guess again talk about being manipulative it's great seeing this person having the experiences that they were deprived of because their child was obviously murdered and him getting to relive that and have these experiences and whatnot and trying to find some semblance of maybe atoning for his sins. Mm. At the end of the day, though, like playing through the second game, I don't feel like that he was justified in what he did. And we don't have to like break down his decision and all that stuff because it's going to be different for everybody. But the idea, again, that people had such a visceral reaction to his death it just kind of screams to me that, again, like a lot of the more mature elements of the story and the characters that were touched upon in the original, for as much as some people want to say that they got it or that they understood that, it still seems like it goes over their heads a great deal. And I would say that that's even more yeah. reinforced when you have that switch and the game begins for the first, 
I believe it's like the first 10 to 12 hours of being Ellie, very much Ellie's story. And then you have that swap to Abby and Abby becomes the protagonist. And you see the other side of the coin that has affected another person's life seemingly that you didn't know they even existed, obviously, in the first game. Mm. But at the same time, you were quite literally shown and you get flashbacks and we'll talk about the perspective shifting and how furthermore, that's another tool in terms of like manipulating the player, whether it be emotionally or just their perception of events and things like that. But I think that it becomes this intertwined, really like cocktail in terms of showing both sides of the coin. And yet it still seems like so many people were just like, they were so convinced it was going to be this type of experience and they just ignore basically all the breadcrumbs that have been there all along. Mm. I mean, the idea that when that, and you know, we talked about or referenced kind of like the controversy and people being the outcry about some of the subject matter that it deals with, which I want to unpack in a little bit. But at the same time, the idea that, I don't know, it's just, I guess I can't put myself in people's shoes that weren't open to the idea of seeing the other side of that coin. Because again, you're constantly reminded like, there's consequences for everyone's actions Mm. and the idea that we wouldn't see those consequences play a pivotal role in a part two. And, you know, I called it a sequel earlier, but it is very clearly a part two because it feels like a natural continuation of something. It doesn't feel like, Oh, this is a a new game in the traditional sense, right? It's only four years later. And when you think about kind of this sprawling post-apocalyptic landscape and all of these things, Yeah, it would take a while for those consequences to catch up with those that are responsible, but inevitably they're going to. And that just, I can't imagine a part two that doesn't tackle those Mm. things in that way. Um, And, you know, again, talking about like the manipulation of forming emotions for characters and things like that. I still can't fight those, especially like when you have these intimate moments between Joel and Ellie, the Mm. flashbacks and things like that. But at the same time, you're presented Absolutely, so yeah. much evidence that it's like, yeah, I had like there are moments in this game where like I get emotional and I don't really necessarily feel that way about a lot of games or during yeah. a lot of games. But again, the writing is of such a caliber that mm-hmm. is on another level. And yet a moment later, I'm reminded like, well, actually, this person's actions, they're con- like the consequence of what happened to them is pretty justified based off of what we're shown this sort of like bevy of an additional 10 to 12 hours of examples of like, yeah. how could you not feel different by the end of this game? It's just, it's a very remarkable thing to me. I guess maybe some people didn't even finish the game because they were so put off by it. But at the same time, like it takes these massive swings and yet they all feel justified and earned more importantly by the end of it. Yeah. I would also point out that, um, you know, when you do have this sort of, brief views of Joel in those years between it's clear that what he did affected him and that he was willing to change and be a better person because he's kind of, I mean the fact he saves Abby you know to his doom you know as it turns out you know he's not selfish he's not uncaring he's not the guy we met at the beginning of the first game you know who really didn't want to know yeah um which makes it all the more tragic I mean he's um becomes a living embodiment of that I think you should leave sketch with the, the you know I used to be a piece of shit <laughs> but yeah now I'm not it's that sort of thing guy like that people can change it's like <laughs> and yeah uh, he doesn't get his sloppy states unfortunately but um, he uh, it's does make it all the more emotionally impactful you know that you can show that about him that he 
as much as he could be like that, he had some sort of redemption in his own warped way. And maybe that's why he's able to sort of just accept it when his fate does come knocking eventually, because he's just living while he can to just try and be the person he thinks he should be for Ellie. You know, and try, but you know, he's all he doesn't realize he's already done that damage. And we learned throughout the game that you know, it's because she's as much as she suspected what he did, you know, she learns more and more about the fact that he did it, you know, and and it's that denial of what he was fuels her so much, it just repeats the cycle. And then, I mean, one of the themes that they brought up in making the game, drug one especially, was this whole idea of cycles of violence and you know, how. Without closing the loop on it, you'll never, you'll be doomed to repeat it over and over again. And the fascinating way of handling it is that Abby and Ellie come at it in very different ways. Abby's life is very healthy, you know. You know her environment is very healthy. She gets on with a lot of people, you know, like that. And she's, but she's always thinking about that in the back of her mind. But she doesn't let it drive her to that point that that Ellie ends up doing, you know. And that's. You know, we'll get to the point later in the game, but it, it makes you view both characters so differently as you go through the game. And in, I wouldn't call it manipulative ways, but I think in very organic ways. I, there, there's criticism to be made about yeah. some of the handling of it, but if if you want to, I can understand. But yeah, it's generally, you know, in video game terms, I think it's really well handled. One last thing I'd like to say about Joel as well is that. I think in general, some people get too caught up on viewing mm. him in a black and white way on either side because he is not no. an evil man either. He's done some horrible stuff in a world where everybody has presumably done some horrible stuff to survive. And I think he does have, in a really, really kind of strange way, he has a sort of redemptive, redemptive moment right at the very end of this game when he's talking to Ellie on the porch and Ellie's like completely like railing on him about everything he's done about how he's a piece of shit and he says that if the lord gave him uh the chance he would do everything exactly yeah. the same way and to me that kind of refrain a selfish action i just want a daughter so i just want a surrogate of my own daughter and i'll yeah, do anything no to have that because what he's saying there is he doesn't really care if she hates him she, she, he doesn't care if she hates him if he doesn't have a relationship with her he just wants her yeah. to be alive and that is a that is like a hint of redemption in what is a very selfish act because it's not about him just having the relationship he had with his daughter again because he doesn't care if Ellie hates him, and talks to him yeah. as long as she's okay and that's yeah and it's it's that there's no black and white to any of these characters except I guess you could say with maybe some of the scars who are just religious fanatics mm. um, but pretty much everyone in this game is or Isaac yeah but every, pretty much everyone in this game with the exception of some of those uh, like tertiary characters is entirely grey and I think that that's what works yeah. so well about it well plus that really reinforces just how important Ellie is to his redemption obviously but it's like yeah at the beginning of the first game, he's not a guy that you are given any inclination to like or anything like that. And yet, if Ellie didn't show up, I mean, what was the rest of his life going to be? He was probably going to get killed by uh, the military or he was going to keep bombing checkpoints or these different things that he would have just kind of spiraled and 
more than likely not just like become what Ellie starts to become, right? And I think that it shows that all yeah. of these again, like you speak to this just the organic nature yeah. of all the characters and how relationships and love play such a vital role to both games. I mean, it shows just the impact that people can have on one another and we'll unpack that in a little bit, but I think before we dive into the next sort of like pivotal switch where you go from playing as Ellie for the first half and then playing as Abby and you get to see the events that have been paralleling what you, the player has been playing for all this time and you get the whole bevy of flashbacks and you see how Joel's actions affected Abby and whatnot and how, of course, Abby's father was the doctor that was going to perform the surgery on Ellie and then Joel killed him and the rest of the Fireflies to save her. I wanted to know what you guys think about the first half of the game and the portrayal of Ellie's kind of spiral into this revenge murder spree and the impact that that necessarily has on gameplay because I don't know about you guys but for me Ellie's half of the game from a gameplay perspective is the least interesting of the two halves it's the half that feels very familiar even if there are these certain changes and alterations that have been made but at the same time it's the type of thing that it just felt like it was more of the same in a way from a gameplay perspective. Neil, how do you feel on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm very much in agreement that it's the weaker of the story. Um, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, I think Abby's story is the story, you know, overall. But I don't, at the same time, I don't think you can tell it without telling this part at first. And right. I think as much as it's there first to appease fans, I think it also serves really well to set up that third act, you know, that third act thing of after that they've both had their parts in the game, you know, mm -hmm. and you get back to Ellie again to set a level, you know, to show that you think she was obsessed before, that you know, will show just how bad it gets, you know, for her and how much she's willing to ruin in her own life to try and right some wrong that was never, you know, has already been righted effectively because you know Joel was that wrong you know himself so yeah I felt like I mean it's gorgeous to look at you know as you go through this environment oh and then it just as I said I am such a sucker for going through you know these abandoned places where everything's overgrown and seeing like this world that once was like the first game there's so much that I just it it's fascinating in its own right you know it's not. It's open, but it's not too open. You know, it gives you things to go and explore, but it doesn't drag you too far away. And you, you can countenance doing it by, you know, well, I want to look for supplies or things for the, you know, to upgrade my guns or, you know, my health and all this stuff. And it all matters because you know that plays into the idea and the themes of the game. You know, you are surviving out here, getting by on whatever you can find in whatever's left of the world. So yeah, it always gives you an excuse to just look around. But the second half just has more interesting places to go, and deals yes. more, you know, with a new character, new fresh faces, new perspectives, and it just has the best run of set pieces. I think everything on you know after after once Lev comes into the game. You know, that whole thing all the way through to the hospital and the end of that is possibly the strongest point of the game. 
you know, I just think, you know, you know Abby dealing with her, uh, her problem with heights is just uh, on that high rise and having to go across there is just so masterfully done. The way I don't know quite what voodoo they did there to sort of really heighten the idea of, oh my God, I'm looking down a really steep place because, you know, mm. I played it that bit again this week and after playing Dying Light where you know you do a lot of Dying Light 2 where you're doing a lot of this you know high rise stuff and being up high and you get a little sense of that ooh vertigo this is a bit high and anything could be mm. but something about the way they do it in The Last of Us Part 2 is just ridiculous it, it just it really does feel you know it gives you a vertigo kind of feeling when, even if you don't have that and really sort of pulls you into the character in a way that I really didn't expect. I was, it was really surprising. And the fact that it worked a second time, you know, is you know, pretty positive. It's not just a gimmick. It is just brilliant camera work and um, you know, brilliant direction, I think, in, in that particular section. And yeah, just, I love that session. Just everything about it, as I said, reminds me of Disaster Report and things like that. Just this whole, you know, oh, got to get up here, got to get down there. Everything could collapse at a minute everything could go wrong and I loved it I just absolutely adored that section so much and then the fact that you go from that to the hospital and the whole Rat King thing yeah brilliant it's just it's <laughs> just splendid you know that 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 for me at the point was where the game really hit its stride yeah so I'm a little bit more down on the first half of the game from a gameplay perspective just because as gorgeous as it looks and you know we'll talk about kind of the technical masterwork of this game and how just, I mean, still, I think this is one of the best looking games I've ever played, even on my, uh, even on my launch PS4, I don't have a pro or anything, but it still looks gorgeous mm. and phenomenal. I think it was just more that even as gorgeous as it looks, it all feels very familiar in the sense that a lot of the environments that you're re- exploring feel not necessarily recycled. I wouldn't go that no, far, no. but they just feel very much in line with what the original touched upon. And, one of my main chief complaints and we'll talk more about some of the things that we struggled with with this game or the elements that didn't line up with our uh, expectations and things like that is that there's so much of it and I appreciated the first half because of again it comes back to the writing always for me and that so many of those interactions between Ellie and then those sections where it's Ellie and Dina who is her girlfriend and then Ellie and um, Jesse who is Dina's ex-boyfriend who uh, Ellie has gone on patrol with all of these times and their friends and all these things. I more appreciate the early section because it gives more insight into how much Ellie is spiraling yeah. into this uh, obsession with revenge and everything and how she almost doesn't even realize it. Like there's so many brief little interactions. I mean, at one point when it begins with Ellie and Dina are trying to hunt down all of the people that were with uh, Abby that killed Joel that had a hand in it, right? They she, they want to hunt these people down and kill each and every one of them. And Dina is kind of kidding herself in the sense of what's going to happen when we catch up to them. Mm. And she's like, well, what are you going to do if they won't talk? Or how are we going to make them talk? And Ellie has this kind of offhanded comment. She's like, well, five minutes with them and my knife and I'll make them talk. And Dina is has this brief bit of dialogue where she's like taken aback yeah. by that. And she I think she even almost says something along the lines of like, whoa, just and just that is her reaction to that and if anything it's so brief and it's so fleeting that it still just instills the reality that Ellie Ellie's mind frame is leaps and bounds away from her girlfriend and who is supposedly like her partner in this quest right a partner in a romantic sense but also a partner in this quest for revenge 
But even still, supposedly they know each other very well and it's an intimate relationship. And yet Ellie is, her mind is going in so the opposite direction of what Dina has in mind and whether or not Dina's like kidding herself about what's going to happen when they catch up to these people. But I think that those little moments further facilitate the character study of Ellie and how she has changed and how it seems as if she now needs her own version of a Joel. So that way she can have someone that gives her a reason other than to continue down the route she's going. Um, But again, like the first half of the game, I just found there was so much of it being familiar that it just goes on for too long. Mm. In my opinion, there's a lot that's done in it that I think from a narrative and a character study standpoint is great. It's just, that was the drive for me. It was not necessarily the gameplay. And, you know, much like the original, I don't necessarily know that I was so invested in the game because of like how it plays or anything like that. Cause it builds off of a lot of familiar staples yeah. of those third person stealth action games. And, you know, it's nice that it has that horror tinge to it that we love and that horror premise and setting and everything. But at the same time, it's more about getting to know the characters more through being shown them, mm. I think. And kind of just like a a blunt example of what they're capable of in their mindset for various things. But Harrison, for you, how was your time with Ellie's half? I'm not 100% sure because from a gameplay perspective, my highlight from the entire game is the bit, is the Capitol Hill bit, which is yeah. the sort of, first extended stealth sequence where you really get to see how all of the all of the ways that they've improved the stealth from the first game and made things feel really dynamic how all of that stuff plays and it's in a big open area that never really gets that big again afterwards Mm. it's definitely the 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 sort of playground where they let you experiment with all yeah it's very much like that Uncharted uh, 4 where they give you that first sort of breakout area in Scotland because that's when the game is doing stuff that I personally never felt a video game do before this this bait and switch where you suddenly are playing not only as a character that you've been set up against but hmm. inhabiting the, the this space with all of these people that you've been gunning down for the past hour and like you said it's a past hour past 12 hours and like you said the Abbey half doesn't work as well without you I think the early half part, I remember feeling like it sort of, not drags, but that's where the pacing dips a little. And then you have that um, that moment where you cut back to the zoo with Abby and everything changes again. And it kind of feels like it gets uh, revitalized with new life at that point. So I kind of get what you're saying about how the Abby part is better, but there are so many individual bits from the Ellie part that to me are among the best parts of the entire game. The part where you can, that that whole section where you explore the open area with Dina and there's all those things you can miss, like where you can go to the music stop to shop or yeah. the, uh, the bank. So it's kind of hard for me to sort of say that it's kind of hard for me to pick a favourite between the two because I think the Abbey Harp is more interesting and more ambitious, but there's lots of individual moments in the Ellie part that I really like and it does have that propulsive nature when you're playing it the first time because at least speaking from my experience I did want to get revenge on these people even though I knew Joel was a bad man who did bad things there was a part of me that was compelled to play through Ellie's part and work through that list of people that had angered me 
and yeah. there's a real sense of like um, momentum as you're just getting through that going through the different people that you saw in that scene um, with the golf club uh, so yeah I don't know I think I see what you mean about how the Abbey part's better I'm kind of torn on it um, I think that the Ellie part has the highest highs and maybe also the lowest lows yeah I was saying to Neil I think it's the type of thing where there's a bit just too much mm-hmm. of the Ellie portion that feels so familiar and I definitely liked and you know I think that's why the the Abbey portion is so strong is because you the longer obviously you spend that great deal of time hunting these people and then you have that switch with Abbey and then I found that I was completely on right. Abby's side by about three hours into her plight because again very much the credit of Neil Druckmann's writing and direction and things of that nature you're just you're given such an abundance of it, of evidence of how this is someone that is completing the natural end of a cycle and that the more I was reflecting on Ellie's portion of it I was like well yeah. this is a perpetuation of a cycle that should have ended and initially in that moment I was like well that's bullshit like yeah. we're gonna kill all these motherfuckers I'm gonna do so with a smile on my face but the longer I played as Abby and getting that flashback it's like and there's even a bit where, and I was mentioning to Neil, when during the Ellie portion, when she's with Dina or when she's with Jesse in those brief sections, you're picking up on a lot of the like little dialogue things that stand out to me. It's not so much the gameplay part of the early section that stood out to me because it kind of, it felt very much like a retreading without being a complete repeat. Obviously, we had mentioned like the game now looks gorgeous and you get to explore these environments that felt very familiar and some of the encounters right. feel just a tad bit familiar for my liking that it feels like it's to just put the player at ease back into this well not at ease but putting yeah, it's putting you back in the groove of Joel's mindset if I, yeah. which in itself is a very clever thing to do it's like oh look right. the, yeah, exactly. Ellie has pretty much gone into that slipstream of what mm. Joel was like it's focus on the job do what's ahead of you and, and get through it and you mm. naturally play that way because that's the way you remember it and I think what Abby's section introduces is a completely different dynamic to it which is like oh no hang on you, know, you can approach all these things in very different ways you know and not just in a mechanical sense but in a narrative sense whether the, the one section is weaker than the other or not I think each section does something to highlight the other really well or complement it you know yeah, and exactly mixing the experiences you get from both of those to then go into that final section is what makes it, you know, and what really shows you, you know, it gives you an idea of what each of those characters, uh, you know, belief systems and how they are going to act in these situations are and how much they're going to matter and how much they really play into how that game ends, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, this is probably another thing that people didn't like is it, it does shine a bad light on Ellie you know it's like but if you're being sympathetic it's like think of the person that was teaching her but again if you're not going to think yeah. if you're not going to think like that and you're not mm. going to see Joel as that kind of person you're going to of course take that into Ellie and think well why should she be the bad person why should she seem like she's being over the top obsessive it's like because it's all she knows and she's doing exactly what Joel did she's perpetuating a lie and trying to to make herself feel better, to to absolve her grief. What's so maddening to me though is that during that Ellie section with Jesse, when they're uh, palling around to go hunt down these people, 
Jesse even calls her on it, right? He calls her on the hypocrisy of what she's doing and that it's like, well, didn't those people kill Joel because of something that Joel mm. did in what seemingly now is like a past life almost? And she is very dismissive of that. And that was really the turning point for me where I was like, okay, this is a character that I loved and is turning into yeah. somebody that is very reminiscent of Joel at the beginning of the first game in a lot of ways where it's like, well... I'm going to keep doing this evil shit and not care when people start presenting my own behavior in front of me, which I think like that speaks to like, yeah. when you're introduced to Joel, he's very abrasive yeah. about everything almost up front uh, when you meet him and whatnot. And then going, I'm probably more keen on the second half of the game because the focus is obviously on Abby. It is on Lev and Yara, who are the characters that we meet that are this p members of another faction that is kind of like this religious uh, zealots and whatnot that are called scars or seraphites um, not affectionately known as scars as you'll as we, as the player learns um, but it's the type of thing that you see a relationship flourish much like it did in the original but in a completely different way it has again a very similar structure in that it is very much a, a, a character taking on a parental role mm. for someone that quite literally at one point loses a parent right and that's Abby saving Yar and Lev and then and taking on the mantle of yeah. being essentially like the parallel of Joel and no, 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 from the first it. game. It's right. Like that's not that's not any great leap to say that, but I think that building on that in a way that feels more complex because of a lot of the subject matter like and we we'll, we can uh, break down some of this and that's part of what I think the controversy again that was surrounding this was is that the more immature part of the fan base or again, you know, the kind of like volatile nature of uh, certain <laughs> corners of like gamer culture and things like that where it's like well you have this character Abby that is clearly not does not fit within the traditional video gamey portrayal of yeah. a female mm -hmm. character let alone a female protagonist right she's like built she's basically a character that is a weapon of war and that has been her entire life's goal is that while Ellie maybe was succumbing to certain things in that sort of like feeling of uh, grief and trauma and anger and whatnot. You see this, the other side of that, where somebody that has quite literally crafted themselves into this weapon of war. And I mean, Abby is very masculine yeah. in the sense that she is very muscular and things like that, or maybe people perceive her as being more masculine because of that. But seeing that other side of the coin, I think is very complex in the sense that it's portrayed, but then also in the subject matter of, you know, Lev being this character that is essentially transgender, right? And that it is a character that they refer to as uh, the scars basically try to kill because Lev is... Yeah, and basically protests against their ways by shaving her head and appearing as masculine. Yeah, and them not agreeing with Lev's identity and things of that nature and you know again you know this is coming from a from a white guy but it seems like a very mature topic that is handled with more elegance and I think more importantly like to a certain degree understanding of yeah. complex subject matter in a way that it I find it builds off the original game in the sense that it's tackling subject matter that we don't typically see in games in a way that feels mature. It doesn't feel like an elementary understanding of certain yeah. material mm. uh, or certain subject matter, rather. And it's the type of thing that, if anything, it gave me more appreciation that the game evolves from this very sort of straightforward idea of revenge and that quest and whatnot 
into something that rivals the original game from that sort of uh, parental to child role, but it just feels very natural in the sense that it tackles a lot more complex subject matter in a way that doesn't beat you over the head with it. It doesn't feel like, I guess, buzzwordy and whatnot. It feels like, well, this is the only way that this story could be told just because of how organically they introduce a lot of that material and the way in which characters interact with one another and things like that. And it just, I don't know, from a storytelling perspective, I just have so much respect for the Mm. second half of the game in terms of how it builds upon but doesn't feel exactly like, okay, we're going to do Ellie and Joel 2.0. It feels informed by Uh that. But it just feels like a like they learned something from that process and then built upon it in the most mature, I guess, respectful way yeah. imaginable. And um, I think a key thing that, that comes down to it's showing different sides of an upbringing. You know that you know Ellie, uh, you know, maybe scrawny, maybe wiry and scrappy and all this, but you know she is more deadly than you expect because of that. Uh, because she's had to live through such trauma in her life and you know the stuff that she was you know outright seen like you know the experience with David in the first game and you know then down to knowing that there's a lie in her life with Joel but wanting that because it's a father figure that she lacked and hence why it sends her off you know to, to the, the way she goes and it's why she's essentially channeling Joel in her mission to avenge him. Whereas, you know, when you go to Abby, she's someone who's had a very normal upbringing despite all this, you know, and had someone, you know, a parent that loves her and cares for her. And, you know, despite knowing that, you know, her dad's a bit of a goof and, you know, oh, you should be careful of this and that, you know, she loves him dearly and he hasn't done anything wrong to be losing her, him like that you know and she comes from a different place and she builds up a support network you know in that time as much as revenge is still on her mind she still gets on with her life you know it affects relationships as it shows with Owen but at the same time you know she's got a healthier outlook uh, when you get down to it and that is very much shown in how she ends up interacting with Lev, you know, and how accepting she is of Lev, you know, wanting to be who he is. Uh, Again, on that role, Ian Alexander, who plays a role, who's brilliant in the OA as well. Um, Yeah, that's that's why that role is so well done, I feel, is because it's someone with that life experience going into this around that same sort of age group Mm. that, that really makes it tick and yeah it's just nice to see that side of it you know and yes of course that makes Ellie look bad you know despite her being you know know, a lesbian in her own right who's like you know she is different to most people around there it still shows it doesn't mean that it makes you a great person just because of this you know it doesn't mean you're special because of that but the upbringing is what's important in both people's cases. It, it's not about who you are and what you do. You know, it's about how you've learned over those years uh, and how you take that information yeah. on board. People can have bad upbringings and bring the best out of it. Lev is um, a good reasoning of this. You know, someone who's being defiant of something that could kill them. You know, if they're for being defiant. You know, not just 
with the Seraphites, but also with her own mother, you know, rejecting him. Mm. So, and you know, on the other side of the coin, you have Ellie, who's grown up through all sorts of trauma and problems and stuff. But the only person she's ever had to look up to, really, is Joel. And as we know, Joel is a piece of shit, and that's never gone away. She knows that, and you know. The things yeah. she's learned at a very impactful time in her life came from a man that is a monster, essentially. And that's the basis of her life. And she doesn't see it until the end, as we were saying with that scene, you know, going back to the time she talks to Joel, where he shows no regrets for what he did because of what it does for her, that she kind of gets it and goes, I took the wrong message from this, you know? And, and, yeah. and now here I am and in a way accepts that she's made that mistake. One of the last things I'll say on like the handling of the subject matter, especially in Lev in particular, is that the way Lev's introduced, it's never, and it's building off of what you had said, Neil, it's not the first no. thing that you learn about the character. So the inclusion of Lev and the identity piece and component and handling of that, it doesn't feel like exploitive no. or anything like that, or it doesn't feel like, well, this is why you should take pity on this character or anything like that. And I think that that really is fostered through that again the parentalness of the parental nature of Abby and Lev's relationship and that you kind of have these milestone moments right it's <laughs> Lev swearing for the first time and it's kind of like a chuckle between them and it's like yeah. oh I've never done that before and then teaching Lev how to fasten yeah. the gas mask for when you go into a spore area and then of course there's the bit when Abby introduces Lev and Yar to uh, the German shepherd I think it's yeah whatever the dog's yeah. name is but again like showing that obviously the seraphites have been have grown up learning to fear dogs because mm. the wolves are using them to hunt them and all of these things but then just having this very like innocent genuine moment that at the face of it it's like okay they're learning to pet a dog but just showing that kind of like nurturing relationship and then they really do after these moments really delve into lev's identity and the importance of that and then that facilitates the plot for why he goes home and whatnot, and how Abby ends up going there, and tying all yeah. of that into Abby's own trauma, right? Abby, much like uh, Ellie, has these trauma or PTSD nightmares, and Abby's nightmares only end once she fulfills what mm. she feels is an obligation, is to not abandoning Levin Yar and having and helping them. Basically, I think she describes it as like these kids didn't deserve this, which, if anything, like it really shows her growth. Yeah. Yeah, and she's reasonable in that. Uh, that again, is the difference in the upbringings. Is this is someone who is making sensible decisions despite being clouded by vengeance for most of the game. And you can see the point pretty much where she gives up on it. You know, when when we finally get round to that encounter between the two, it's really very much like you know, you're. I mean, you're Abby at this point, facing Ellie. And all the conflicting emotions of the game up to this point come into her head, and you're like, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, because the game is pretty much insinuating that it's like, yeah, you're going to have to kill her now. And this is it. Yeah. And you and Abby are both going through the same thing. It's like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not at that point anymore. I just, it wasn't about you. It was, I could, but Abby more than ever now understands why why Ellie is doing what she's doing and as angry as she can be about what Ellie's done as a result of that she's 
holding back because you know let's be honest abby could actually cream her you know we, we've seen that already and yeah there's that bit of hold back from it and ellie takes it ends up taking it so personally you know that, that it drives that obsession further into that final act you know and even at a point where it's like oh for fuck's sake ellie just stop you know you're, you're literally just at that point saying why why are we still doing this you know it's like you know, and I think making the game as long as it is almost is like prodding the player to say, come on, do we really need to keep doing this? Do we really need to keep going here? It's like like that. And then you've, you know, we'll get to that. But, you know, the way it ends up being, it's just, it does everything in its power to say, there's no point in any of this. Come on, let, let's just let it be. Yeah. And beautifully, it kind of forces you not to, have a choice so to speak it's like if you want to continue you got to do this and that's that well there's two big pivotal moments i think with abby that really solidified in me that this is the character that i think is has learned the most from their experiences and whatnot and it furthermore reinforces to me the importance of relationships and essentially varying degrees of love between characters and things like that and that is that first boss fight i'll call it a boss fight i don't know how much it is but it's like Abby is fighting Ellie and whatnot. And you have that moment where it's like, is she really going to kill this character that we've like been known to grown to love and all of these things. But at the same time, you see Abby begin to really spiral in the same way that Ellie is in that when Dina shows up and she is seeing that like, okay, Ellie kills Mel who was pregnant. And then you have Abby about to do the same thing. And when Ellie tells her Abby's about to slit Dina's throat and Ellie says, well, don't do that. She's pregnant. And Abby goes, good. And she's moments from doing it. And it's it's not Abby like having a realization that, oh, I'm perpetuating this cycle of violence or I'm becoming my, my foe and all these. But it's Lev that says, don't. And that's all he says. And then just stares at Abby. And Abby sort of realizes like she's about to make some about to make a decision that she can't unchange or she can't step back yeah. from. Which, again, it, it, there's not much dialogue there, but I think that it's a testament to the importance of like the motion capture that went into facilitating a lot of the emotion in this. And that, you know, we've briefly talked about like how this game is a technical marvel in many ways, but that motion capture, it feeds through a lot of the emotions in a way that conveys them that sometimes people might say, I suppose it's kind of like, well, how much do you have to say in a moment like that? But it's like, well, it's not what's being said. It's what's being communicated silently through that motion capture, which is, I mean, this is this is saying. Sorry, going back to the original game at the end, it's like so much is said in silence at the mm-hmm. end of that, that game. And, you know, even with the technology at the time, they still managed to convey it perfectly, and that that is so rare for a game of that age. You know, to be able to yeah. do that, and yeah, it, it does it. And so it's, it's, again, this feels like a natural evolution of that, where you should be able to read it like that. Because, you know, it's somewhere in between like being a TV show, being a film. But most of all, I think, especially with the structure of this and how long it takes, The Last of Us Part 2 is a book, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's a book. It's a, telling a story like that. It is not leaving out details. It's adding all these bits and bobs, going back and forth, really conveying a sense of emotion for, for the greater good all throughout it. And that to me is what compelled me it compelled me to 
keep going with it in the same way a book would, you know, where it really just goes, oh, I want to see what the next chapter holds, what the next chapter holds. And it's like, which I find isn't really the same case with movies because movies can be all sorts of things and the structure can, and TV shows can just have these lulls for the sake of being lulls, you know, because you know, the budget didn't call for anything of this episode, so they have to chat for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not really to further the narrative it's just because like well we have to have this bit here this bit there whereas a book and a video game like this really just feel like they're, they're naturally freely telling a story the way they want to tell it you know it's like as much as you can take these asides in your mind or in terms of the game like moving around and exploring you can take these little breaks and go hmm yeah well I wonder about this and like that and, like that, and then come back to the main path and push on through you're you're getting the story as is they want to tell it and that that is the thing that doesn't get talked about enough I think most of the best games in terms of storytelling do that that they take their cues from books more than anything as much as this is a you know visual showcase in so many ways I could I could imagine it as a written word and to and and conjure up the images in my mind, you know, like that. It's I, I think it's one of those that would work just as well being a novel. Yeah, I guess um before we kind of move on from the narrative side of uh, The Last of Us Part Two, uh Harrison, for you, were there any of the I mean, granted there's a lot of them, but I mean there's quite the expansive cast and they're not really I feel like none of the the expanded cast are really like an afterthought uh, in the way that maybe some games that are like, oh, we can be bigger, so let's include a bunch of new characters and then end up being kind of thinly veiled, even though there is one uh, one supposedly central antagonist to this game that is so thinly veiled, I couldn't believe it. But for you, were there any uh, secondary yeah. characters that stood out to you, uh, given that there were quite a few that were added? Yeah, it's like you said, with, with the exception of one person uh and from what you just said i think we're talking about the same person <laughs> i think they are all incredibly well fleshed out um and i think i think i agree with it sounds like i'm just going to be repeating what you guys have already said lev definitely stands out to me as kind of in something that is so dark and so grim throughout uh uh, uh, uh much like dina a source of levity and of, of hope in this mm. world. The other character that I think is very, very interesting is Owen. Because yeah. Owen is, in many ways, the nicest, the, 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 the moral compass of everything. He's the person who says, we came here to just kill Joel, we, we didn't come here to kill anybody else. He's the one who says, like, don't torture him, just kill him, get this over with. But at the same time, even he's a flawed person because yeah. he's he, having an affair. Um, he's quite sort of selfish about it. Like when Abby, um, when Abby's going to leave at one point, he's trying to convince her to come with him just because I guess he can't make a decision about who he wants to be with. Hmm. So even Owen, who is the closest person in the game to a, except for maybe Dina, to a moral compass, uh, to a good, solid person, even he's a flawed human being yeah, and yeah, I don't know. I can't help but still like him anyway, and that's that's what's so good. As we've said many times about the writing here, is that nobody's perfect. Everybody has got 
everybody does something bad everybody has moments of weakness but you like them despite those things throughout and I think Owen's a really strong example of that yeah he he feels like the person who though he doesn't know what life was like before all this is trying to live it you know he's mm. trying to be like it once was he yeah you know, shirks his duties when he he realizes it's he's going to get in trouble for something that he could explain. He could, if he had a, a more will to him, he could go around, turn around, and go, "Well, this is what happened." But he knows how Isaac works, and he's like, "Now nah, I'm going to just hang back and hide like that." But then doesn't realize the consequences of doing that is making other people worry about him and what he's doing. And yeah, it's, yeah. he's yeah, he just feels like a very normal person in the best way you know not like in the sense of like video game normal which is like generic white man with a buzz cut or anything like he just feels like a regular guy that you like yeah yeah he can do some dumb things but yeah he's a cool guy he's fine you know we get it uh, you know you can understand the weird relationship he has with Abby and all that's going on there and how that relationship fizzled out but still exists because you know it's like especially because Abby as we said is this character that as much as her drive for vengeance was enough to put Owen off to a degree from being with her it's he still adores her and still wants to be with her and I think that's why they end up sort of having this sort of tete-a-tete and getting back together in a brief sense is because of that, you know, because he feels, oh, maybe things are different, maybe, and he kind of has regrets about the way things are going, and it, it's an interesting sort of dynamic, you know, it's it feels like a very regular relationship problem yeah. put into a very unusual situation. Yeah, I'll say he feels like he's trying to hang on to a semblance of what the old world was like, even though he himself was not a part of it, but also mm-hmm. the fact that everybody else has seemingly moved on Yeah, for the most part. I, th- I think, again, he is further reinforced by the fact that Abby largely agrees with the way he conducts himself outside of his relationship with Mel and things like that because of, again, like they were both influenced by a Joel figure, which was Abby's father, right? I mean, they were both yeah. very close and then, of course, close with the father. But that further shines through in one of the flashback sequences when we get to see Abby when she's younger during the events of the original game, tracking her father who has basically like run away from his medical duties uh, in regards to humans to go help a de- uh, zebra that escaped yeah. somehow and gets trapped in the barbed wire, which, if anything, again, kind of just reestablishes the fact that like in this cruel world, there are these people that are trying to hold on to an old way of life that the world and a majority of the inhabitants have moved far past. But I guess in terms of the new expanded cast, I would say uh, Jesse and Dina, you know, Jesse played by Stephen Chang, Dina played by Shannon Woodward, two really strong performances, even if, you know, Dina, I don't necessarily know is that strong of a character. It kind of feels just like this is the character that's supposed to ground Ellie as being a love interest, yeah. but then and Jesse being one of her friends that is like seems like a good guy, but at the end of the day we don't know much about. I think it's a strength though to just the way in which both of those uh, voice actors carry the characters in that they again they're not in a great deal of the game; they're in a longer portion than no. somebody like Joel is, but at the same time they're able to establish these characters and when uh, Jesse gets killed like that is 
a blow to Ellie's support system that while the game maybe moves on from that, like, I don't know about you guys, I definitely took notice and it lingered in a way that stuck with me for a portion of the rest of the game after that. I was like, man, thinking about the bodies that have piled up after this journey that she's been on and what does that look like in the future? And, you know, Jesse's death especially is something that I always think about when I'm playing this game because it furthermore is supported by one of the new features, which is Ellie keeps this notebook that she sketches in and she's been making notes in periodically about events that if you don't read the notebook, like it doesn't change the outcome of the game or anything, but it just provides more detail. And there's a passage in that that talks about how when Ellie is living with Dina in the farmhouse and it's after the events of that outside of Jackson and she writes a passage about Jesse's parents coming out to the house to be with them and to visit and whatnot. And just you're barely given any details about that other than it was awkward and Ellie decided to leave and go hunting and didn't come back until late at night because she felt so awful. At the same time, though, like that scene playing out in my head and realizing I know this character so well, I know Jesse's impact on that character. I could basically like play that scene out without having to be shown it. And that's Mm -hmm. an element of, again, uh, whether it be like world building or environmental storytelling, things like that, that just furthermore complement the writing in this game. And I'm going to keep beating that drum until we stop recording (laughs) because it's a game that it's such a standout. It sticks with me in that regard more so than so many other things I've played. Yeah, it really takes you on that ride, I think, where you just want to indulge in every one of its whims. Yeah. And, and yeah, sure, you can stand back from it and go, some of this maybe doesn't work as well as it, it makes out mm. at first. But I think as a whole, I think it does just enough in terms of ambition to sort of, you know, warrant a bit of reprieve, you know, from you know, criticizing it too heavily. Um, yeah, I think I, one of the criticisms that sort of came up during that time was um, about the level of violence, which to be honest just just seems odd to me. But then the, maybe that's just odd to me because I, I've seen so many post-apocalyptic things that have really de- dealt in brutal violence, and you know, I've I've seen worse in Walking Dead graphic novels than I have <laughs> in anything that The Last of Us puts up, like, including. Including pregnant woman being killed, you know that's been done. Yeah, it's like. Well, Harrison, why don't you speak on that? Because that was one of the points that you uh, raised when we were talking about chatting about this game. Mm. In that the role that the increased violence, and I would say compared to the the, makes the original game look fairly uh, tepid in terms of the violence. Yes. Um, How does the violence in The Last of Us Part Two really complement the overall narrative and also you know thematics that the game so heavily deals in? Yeah, because the, the thing with the violence in this game is that the, the violent video games are nothing new. Mm, nice. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, most video games are violent. There are a handful that aren't, but they are very much the exception. But the, the way that this game does violence is very different from the way that most, at least, AAA games do. Yeah. Because the violence in this game is, for the most part, not meant to be cool. It's not meant to be... Um, particularly fun it's all even when you're doing it it's it's graphic it's horrible it looks painful if you hit someone with a hammer in this game and you go into like the photo mode you can see like their teeth flying out and their cheek like swelling if you throw a bottle at someone there are like shards of glass 
embedded in their face and it looks it looks horrible it doesn't look cool it doesn't it's not like playing doom right. where there's a there's a real sense of like satisfaction and fun to just running through chainsawing demons heads off like for the most part you kind of wince when you do something bad to someone in this game except maybe if you shoot them with the explosive arrows because that's that's it's pretty cool. fucking cool <laughs> but, yeah yeah um and i understand there was a review at the time that compared it to i compared it to shingles list which i completely understand what that person was trying to say yeah. the example of shingles list was the yeah. they could have said they could have said like i don't know old boy or something something else where the violence is not meant to be glamorized the, the Schindler's List example uh, was the Sh- problem. Schindler's but, like, List comes with some historical baggage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But like, I completely understand the point that they were trying to make, which is that the violence in this game is not... It's not like Call of Duty or... or, or like. The, I think that the thing they specifically said was like most video game violence is like John Wick. It's, it's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be satisfying. In this game... I think for the most part it's not and if there's a failing with this game I think it's that sometimes I find the combat perhaps more fun than they intended it to be yeah like like when we talked about blowing people up with the with the bow and arrow like I do kind of like chuckle after I blow people up into little giblets and that's probably not what they were going for but generally speaking the this is the case when people talk about Ludo narrative dissonance all the time with video games this is a case of that not being the case um the the game is all about this cycle of violence and the the narrative is very much focused on how just going for revenge over and over again is, is it just leads to nothing but misery and it's actually reflected in the gameplay when you kill just random npcs it, it's it's nasty it's horrific Sometimes it's accompanied by another character yelling out that person's name, yeah. which I know some people have an issue with that being like overdone. But it's I think it's a really unique way of doing yeah. violence in video games that, for the most part, I think is very successful. I did not understand at all because I had read reviews around the time this was released where people were complaining about that and saying it was too in your face. And more towards the end of our chat, mm-hmm. I want to bring up again like the relationship between the in-game violence and then the portrayal of the effects of violence on characters throughout the cutscenes and things like yeah. that. Cause that is where my relationship, or maybe we can talk about it now, but that's where my relationship with the way that this game portrays violence. I take a little bit of issue with in terms of, we see how right. certain deaths affect certain characters, namely Ellie, right? And she very clearly at the end of the, towards the end of the game has this PTSD flashback of Joel, and and it shows that like that and her own actions she's had this spiral and it's more prevalent yeah. in her killing specific members of the wolves right that were there in that day that had a hand in killing Joel or helped facilitate it and then basically all of those people met a more brutal death than anybody else that she's killed throughout the course of the game yeah. and the thing that though doesn't work for me in terms of the narrative part of that is that the gaminess of it, the very inherent nature of it being a video game is that you've killed a thousand people by the end of the game. So when they try yeah. to have this very serious talk about, well, she's feeling PTSD from this moment and observing this death. And it was like, I killed like 400 scars with an explosive bow and arrow. You tell me that didn't happen. So 
That is the one element of the brutal violence that when they try to apply like a PTSD narrative to it, which would make sense and work, mm-hmm. for me, I have this sense where I'm like, well, certain deaths are more affecting than others. Whether or not you have that relationship, it just, when they introduce the PTSD nature of her uh, character, it kind of comes out of nowhere because I feel like we should have been, she should have been grappling with this for the entire game. Almost like that's the element that when they have that moment, I'm like, well, I feel like she should have had one of these episodes every time she had to like beat one of the wolves to death with a pipe or she basically like decapitates one of them at a certain point. That's the part outside of the gameplay elements, which I mean, I think that it represents the world better than it did in the first game. Right. I mean, you shoot somebody with a shotgun and their face is gone or you see the remnants of their brains on the wall if you hit them with a pipe in the head or something like that. And it, that feels fitting to me because it represents like just how bleak and how far gone this world is. Who knows if a mm. vaccine would have that would have ended the infected plague. Who knows if anybody can come back from that. But it's the application of like PTSD and violence in the narrative that by the end of the game, I'm like, well, she's done so much horrific shit for 20 hours or something like that should have maybe been a little more prevalent the ramifications of that for Ellie rather than like Jesse gets killed or uh, Tommy almost gets murdered because of those consequences for her actions yeah so I'm going to go to bat for the game on this one Um, basically I just think that she is so single mindedly focused on her task at the time that anything that isn't her main targets she doesn't see as anything other than an obstacle. Like she's grown up in a world where violence is the norm, you know, like like extreme violence is the norm. Like I said, you see t- during a time during the first game all the stuff she has to see, witness, and that tied to this whole guilt about you know we learn about how she left things with Joel before he was killed, you know, and. That, I think, really does just channel into it, that she just doesn't see anything else. She is literally blinded by her vengeance. And no matter how much people try and show her different... We've all been there with... with you no, know, I'm not saying to this level, obviously, but, you know, we are... <laughs> but we're, you know, you have those intrusive thoughts that will go through your head and someone can say to you, well, they can reason with you about why that is, and, tell you, and try and make it feel better, and make you feel like you know you don't have to feel like this. Look, look at it this way, and it sounds perfectly logical, perfectly reasonable as a thing. But in your head, you aren't shaking it. You know, it's still there. You can't get yeah. rid of it. You are in that zone, and I think it's telling that you know the game goes to the point where you get to that final act and she's still willing to go and end this because she wants closure because she didn't get to finish the job. She didn't get to do what she wanted to do. And she was somehow humiliated in, in trying to get to that closure, you know, that she was obsessed. She she wants to end it. She wants, thinks that's the only way she can have a normal life when, in reality, she needs therapy, which ain't happening, you know, at this point. And, you know, and 
it's natural. It, it happens, and PTSD is part of that. You, you have this thing where people can have perfectly normal things to live for, and like, oh look, now I got a family, and now I could live happily ever after if I really wanted to. But something isn't right, and you want to correct it, and she can't do anything else, and it's driving her mad because mainly because she left things the way she did and she can never take that back she can never change that and there's always that guilt about how the whole thing with Joel went because she knew that there was this lie that was built into their relationship that blew up and never got resolved properly and she's this is the only way she knows to sort of deal with it the portrayal of PTSD the way that it is in this game, it's like, well, she has PTSD because she had a relationship with the person that violence was committed against when in actuality, like PTSD can be tied to violence regardless of a relationship. Obviously, I understand from a narrative sense that it's like, yeah, of course, it is going to be intrinsically tied to her surrogate father and things like that. And that's going to be haunting. But I don't know when I'm looking at it in terms of just like the violence overall, that element Hmm. to be introduced so late in the game. It's more about when it's introduced. I think that it would have made some of the elements of violence that are like pivotal story milestones. It would have made those more impactful and further reinforced. Like the idea Hmm. that she is spiraling in the face of these things that she would essentially by the end of the game know that if she kills Abby, that's not necessarily going to be a cure, but she's spiraling so much that that is the only outcome because every time that... My point is is that like if you have these mem- uh, moments and milestones where she killed Nora and I forget what the other guy's name is. One of the, the first uh, wolf that she kills in the TV station, she yeah. stabs him in the neck. Oh. Um. But like each of these people that she kills that are supposed to be like significant milestones in getting to Abby... If the PTSD element had been introduced earlier, it wouldn't have made the very end instance of it feel as sort of like plot devicey for me, at least as it came off. Um, but I think overall, though, like the complaints that I was reading in some reviews and things like that or criticisms about the game is gleefully violent. It's like, well, it's it's yeah. the end of the world. Like, I don't understand why you'd be led to believe that things were going to improve, yeah. if anything, like. Society is going to become even more primal in a sense. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, real life has pretty much shown us that people's empathy is not as high as we thought. And in a game all about revenge, like, how is that outfitting? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think moving off from sort of just the very brutal violence of the sequel, which is very much more kind of like it's more pessimistic I think whereas the original was more optimistic right it's like oh there might be a cure we might Mm -hmm. be able to move on from this whereas the sequel very much doesn't revel but it very plainly shows that like well if there's no solution then we're going to basically regress as a civilization or as a species kind of yeah but also that we don't have to and I think that's the key thing there is like there are constant reminders that you can live and have a happy life in this environment. They've made settlements. They've made towns. The only reason conflict ever comes into this game uh, and this story is because of one man's actions. One man's very selfish, 
very personal actions. And before that, they were fine. It's built upon relationships, though, right? It's yeah. about that you have to have yeah. those relationships to find a purpose greater than devolving into yeah. the people that kind of that. I mean, to the example Harrison gave earlier, it was when Joel and Ellie get jumped in the first game by those people and Joel calls it out before it happens. He's like, well, I used to do that. The only thing that's stopping him from progressing down that path is that Ellie came into his life and that was the reason to. Yeah. And he's found that peace. Yeah, that's it. Tommy's uh, example would be, I think her name, it, what, was it Marlene? His love interest? Yeah. So, I mean, who's yeah. to say Tommy wouldn't have gone down that same path had he not met Marlene, who essentially Oh, no, Marlene's the other person, isn't it? Sorry. Uh, Maria. 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 That's it, sorry. Marlene was unfortunately the one that uh, dies near the beginning of the first game. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's... But in each case, there's this reminder that you can have a normal life outside yeah. of your vengeance that you can find acceptance for that and Abby does if you think about it you know she kills Joel and she everything feels normal to her again you know she's living a fairly regular life for what that is in, the, in that environment and it only really gets upset again because of what Ellie does in retaliation and you know, which is the point of the game and yeah this is it you know it all comes down to the idea of Joel being selfish and just thinking no I want what's best for me not a chance for humanity because the gamble didn't work for him you know it's like I want to feel happy I want to feel some kind of redemption for what happened to me so long ago and yeah he pays the price and eventually for that you know and that sets all this emotion and it just so i mean this is not new this is something and so much of like uh apocalypse media you know there's always a we could all live happily ever after but there's always going to be someone who does something that sets things in motion <laughs> to go wrong because of their own personal trauma from the past you know the walking dead is a constant reminder of that you know there's always someone who's done something to some wrong someone else in the past that just as everything's looking rosy, that's it. We're back in war again. And the idea is that you keep trying to build on that and keep trying to show that there is hope. You can keep coming back from these things. And, you know, Ellie gets so many chances to, to get back from that. And she really does just prove that she's too far gone in terms of, like, wanting this closure. And it's not her own fault entirely you know as we said this is just the way she was brought up the things she experienced at a very pivotal age have made her this way and she can't help it and that's where the perpetuation lies you know Joel did this so she is like this and it's frustrating in the best possible way that she ends up like that because it makes that again wordless ending perfect for what it is because you just she sits there and you can read it in her face that she gets it she gets what she did wrong entirely and understands that she can't do anything about that now yeah there's no crawling on her knees to to apologize and say yeah no i fucked up you know she went too far 
way, way too far, despite warnings not to. And she took that gamble. You know, it, it's addiction in a very different form, you know, in terms of like giving in to your anger, you know, being addicted to being angry and being rage induced, you know. And, and I think that is such a wonderful aspect of the story. And I like how it's also so that that's it on like in like a microcosm, mm. but then on a, a grander scale, that's exactly what's happening with the Seraphites and the wolves. Yeah. Who, no matter how many documents you read throughout the game, you can never really get to the exact bottom of why they started fighting in the first place. There's, you'll find a tech uh, like a document that will say that this particular branch of the WLF are fighting against the Seraphites because. Like their kids got killed, yeah. but then you find out that they killed those kids for some other, and it's just like every document Around, yeah. is then preceded by. Actually, we did this because you did that, and you can. It's just constant. You can never actually get to the bottom yeah. of like what was the inciting incident of this, and I don't think it even matters to anyone who's fighting. Anymore. They're just fighting because they always have been. It's all they've ever known, yeah. and I think that's even sort of mentioned by Owen at one point when he basically says something like I'm just sick of fighting yeah. over land that I don't give a fuck that's about. it for some people it's, it's just it's a conflict and, that's just become completely meaningless at this yeah. point for some people it's a purpose for others it, it has just become like why why are we bothering you know, like that and which is war you know in its entirety yeah well that's the big like focal point of the WLF and the uh, the Seraphite conflict where Isaac gets to the point where he's like, we're just going to have all out war with them because it's better than what we're doing right now. And it's just mm. like, well, yeah. at the end of the day, like, what is the real culmination of that happening? It's like one side wins, but you're not going to be able to kill everybody. That's just not how it why? works. Also, why? Yeah. But it's like, inevitably, people are going to survive. They're going to splinter off, form their new factions. And then in the course of the next 10 to 15 years, once a new yeah. settlement has popped up, it's going to be this, again, violence begetting violence and whatnot. Um an element that we haven't really touched upon from a gameplay perspective that is an evolution from the original that I think is pretty prevalent and it surprised me. It was one of the elements that wasn't spoiled for me was the introduction of more, not open world, but larger environments to explore in this game. Um, and that being something I think Harrison actually touched upon briefly, which was when you're with Dina and you're riding on a horse and you come out into this massive sprawling cityscape, and your end goal objective is you have to find gasoline, which can be in one of two places, but then there are these side stories that splinter off of that environment. And that one area could take about an hour or so to traverse just because of the side stories and the side content. And it is a much less linear portion of the game that I think there's two or three instances like that that are very different from the original game. And that is one of probably the best examples of the technical achievement that is The Last of Us Part Two, other than, of course, the way it looks, which we've touched upon. Yeah. Just the way in which they're able to expand upon the world, but in that, they're able to really strengthen the best parts of what we've been saying about why we like this game so much. The way in which they're able to build upon the world, those that coexist in it, but also, like, environmental storytelling, which is something that I think we all agree is a strength of the original, and it's definitely a strength of yeah. this one. I mean, were there any... Yes little side stories from that that really stood out to you guys from that portion? I think the one that stands out to me immediately in my head is there's a kind of string of documents that are all connected to this guy called Boris. Yeah. Who 
is the one that you end up getting the bow and arrow from. Um, the, he's the, the infected that actually has a bow and arrow that Ellie, uh, when you kill that one, you take the bow and arrow from him, you can skype away. You've got to set up a bunch of targets in the, in the backyard. And that's a, a series of notes that I think if you miss any individual one of them, then you kind of don't get the full story. Yeah. But it's it's basically that that mini story is the entirety of The Last of Us 2 in a nutshell, because it's about this guy who becomes so desperate for revenge after I think it's the wolves kill his kids. Um, and he ends up getting his entire community uh, kind of all riled up against the wolves for this and starts a mini skirmish with them until he loses everybody, just like Ellie does. And it's it's basically like prophetic of what's going to happen to Ellie. Yeah. But it's something that you can completely miss, and I always love that in video games, when there's this, this content that people put a lot of effort and a lot of thought into that's completely optional. It feels all the more rewarding if you do find yes. it. It's the same reason I love the bit um, in the the music store uh, where Ellie plays Take On. Yes. That's a great moment, and it would be a great moment if it had to occur. You know, if it was a, a script, if it was a part of the story that you could not miss. But it, it's more rewarding if you find it and you discover it. And you mentioned, you know, you're talking to someone else and go, "Did you see that bit?" And then they didn't. It feels all the more special if it's something. If it's like a nice little discovery you found, and that's why I like about the Boris story. I also like the the kind of the world building that comes from some of the Seraphite uh, notes as well. Yeah. So when you're um, when you go to their island as Abby at the end, you can find like a note about how one of the scars is getting ready to ship off the wall, but he's got like a crush, and it kind of humanizes these characters that you don't really get that much characterization from otherwise yeah. uh, you know for the most part the scars are just enemies for you to go down but you can find these little notes that do inflect them with a little more humanity and I think that's really cool especially because it's not something that is given to you you have to find yeah. it there's a good depth of again you know the world building is sort of the obvious stuff that you can't not stumble upon but yeah the idea that this game just has so much additional depth to it that is so easily missable I think just reinforces the emphasis on exploring every inch that it has to offer I mean we were saying before we were recording that this playthrough you know to to make time to be able to finish uh, my second playthrough so we could record on it I was kind of skipping past some of those moments but in my initial playthrough which was much longer obviously than my replay like scouring every single note every single piece of information and it wasn't from like a collector's standpoint. That's never how I approach games. I'm never like, I have to find everything. No. In a game like The Last of Us and The Last of Us Part Two, I have to find everything because I want to know everything. It's the type of thing where yeah. as soon as I finish it, no matter how many times I play it, it's the type of thing where in the back of my head, I'm like, well, what what else can I learn about this place? Even though chances are I've learned everything there is about the game, even though I've played it now twice, which, you know, if it was a shorter game, that would be nothing. But granted, it's about a 20 plus hour experience like that's, yeah, that's I mean, a yeah. substantial amount of time I think it's fair to say that but it is the type of thing that it's a world that is so rewarding for just coexisting in and mm. I think making those moments missable yeah you get those little anecdotal things and it's more convenient when a bunch of your buddies are playing games like when I was playing the original in college we had that moment where okay I'm going to spend more time probably than 
somebody else that I'm friends with because they kind of play games very casually. So I get to tell them about a section and I found this and they're like, oh, I didn't even play that or I didn't even find that. And all of a sudden they want to go back and they want to learn more about it. And that's a very special thing, I think. And, you know, of course, if something's missable and yet it has such a profound effect on you, you're like, well, damn, I wish everybody approached games the same way that the three of us do, because then it would be like, well, everybody could truly appreciate every bit of this for as not only substantial, but as rewarding as it is for the overall experience. Because I don't know about you, but like you're, I would, I would fair to say like your overall impression of the game does not change that much, Harrison, if you don't have that Boris uh, realization where you have uncovered that. And yet, if anything, it makes it a stronger impression of the overall product and a greater appreciation for it, which if anything, like putting more time into something and just getting a greater appreciation rather than sort of like being like, well, this is kind of dumb or this doesn't really do much. It's like, that's the ultimate dream as uh, somebody that is consuming these games as frequently as the three of us do. And that's the thing. You're right as well about how you, you mentioned earlier that in this game, you're not collecting stuff for the sake of collecting stuff. You're not collecting stuff because it's uh, it's like a box right. that you've got to tick. Yeah. And even the things like the trading cards, yeah. right? That's 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 a part of Ellie's mm-hmm. personality. You know? that's, a, that's like the yeah. one sort of element of her character from the original game that she sort of latched onto and that hasn't changed because of all this trauma. She still likes that kind of nerd stuff that she liked before. She gets these trading cards. And then as Abby, you collect those coins, which are her connection to her father. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it's another nice little parallel yeah. between the two, because you see that like these two people in different circumstances in a different world, they could probably be friends because they both like this stuff. Yeah. They like to collect stuff. They There's a part where you see that Abby has like a, an anime poster in a room. They could have, in an, in an alternate universe, they could have been friends, but because of the circumstances that they're in, they're, on, they're completely opposed to each other. And that's, I think you're absolutely right, that like none of the collectible stuff just feels like it's there, I don't know, to pad out the trophy list or whatever. It's all informing the characters and the world. And I think that that's part of what makes the exploration in this game feel rewarding and special. The, the nerd culture aspect of like Ellie's personality com- literally comes up in dialogue. And it's not, and you know, it is as sort of uh, throwaway as like, oh, you're still collecting those things. But then also it comes across when you're with uh, Jesse and you're venturing into downtown Seattle and you come across like a comic expo or they basically have like Comic-Con or something and Jesse comments on it and they have a brief bit there. Or even with, uh, uh, what was it? It was Ellie and Dina. They see like a movie poster and then you get a couple lines of dialogue about how Ellie and Joel or, or Joel is really into like 80s action movies and they start talking about that and it brings up a bit of information about that relationship that kind of just like comes up very, very organically. It doesn't have to be a text document or a, a note that you find that is from Joel that says like, hey, uh, action movie at my place at eight or whatever. It just comes yeah. up very naturally and then they move on from it. And those are the little bits of dialogue that I cling on to because... Yeah, I still have the same appreciation for the characters and the performance and their arcs and all of these things without those. But if anything, it comes up and it's just like, well, these are characters that at the end of the day, when you have those big emotional uh, sort of moments of with them, you're like, well, I know something about them or I feel I know something about them, which just makes them feel like people, which I think is why 
This game and the series in general is able to convey so many emotions that like in film would be very familiar, but in games, yeah. it gives them the personality that you feel like for me, at least somebody that's not necessarily the biggest, uh, I don't know, somebody that doesn't go around and be like, oh, I love these characters or these are characters that I really feel like I know. These games go the extra mile in crafting people that I feel like I know in a way yeah. that you know that's why i think i have such a uh, i have such a visceral reaction to certain moments in this game that makes it such a standout um the last thing i'll say about in terms of like coming back to like the scope of some of the areas and the freedom that comes with that i'm somewhat convinced that something like uh the uncharted lost legacy that naughty dog game was somewhat of an experiment to see if they could pull off these exactly. wider open environments yeah. that then they could put into this and kind of take that structure and then make it applicable to this world. Am I alone in thinking that? Because I played through yeah, that. No, you, you won't. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, even down to like marking the map when you, you know, when you find stuff that's taken directly from Lost Legacy as well. And that was the best part of Lost Legacy. So, one hundred percent makes sense to to carry over into this. Sorry, I was just going to say one other thing about exploring the world is that I think it also I can't overemphasize enough how much I appreciate. I am not wandering around a city that I've explored a thousand mm. times in video games before, like San Francisco or New York. <laughs> yeah. Seattle is a yeah. is a com- is a completely different location. Sorry, did I say it's Seattle's a completely different location, and it's just nice to walk around new sites mm. and uh, a place that has a very different look and feel to a lot of other cities that yeah. you kind of get sick of exploring video games well. or hearing the same three landmarks over and over like you didn't have to have this <laughs> long slog across the Golden Gate Bridge or something yeah yeah, yeah absolutely I, I'm totally in agreement with that um, I got a weird soft spot for Seattle as a place um, through various media and things over the years and yeah just had that in video games again I mean infamous uh, the uh, PS4 game uh, was um, that that's song? it. I was trying to think. I was thinking of First Light, and yeah, that was a game that I was like, oh, okay, I like this because the setting is like this sort of being in that Seattle area, and um, it doesn't quite delve into the more you know deciduous trees and all this stuff thing of that environment. Mm. But it kind of reminds me of here, you know, where I am in Bournemouth, where you, know, you have to see. Yeah, the seaside, you also have forests not far away and like that. And just, it's like the American version of here. And it's, I, I like that as much as I'm not a fan of that here. It's this bigger, bigger, better version of that. And in a city sense. And I've always been very enamored with that place, you know, and it's a place I'd really love to sort of visit anyway. And so yeah, it was really cool to sort of just go through that and, take in its culture because you know that that does go into it you know like uh, the record store is very much the thing of that you know that you have and you know Joel's own choice of music being uh, you know Pearl Jam you know when he does a Pearl Jam song you know uh, it's it's very loving towards that place and it just made it more fascinating to me because it really did feel like a real place in a very different yeah. era, you know, like an era that you're never going to experience yourself, you know, and that was exciting to me. 
you know, I, I, you know, I love a, a fictional environment as much as the next person, but when it's taking something from reality and changing it in such a substantial way like this, it really did just sort of enamor me to it in a whole different way. I have to say my my love for The Last of Us completely 100% stems from the fact the first game takes place in Boston as a Bostonian, so <laughs> disregard everything I've said before that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one thing that uh, Harrison raised and I definitely agree with in terms of uh, how this game evolves on the post-apocalyptic, you know, zombie nature of the original is the way in which the sequel or part two evolves on like the morphology of the infected and really feeds into the creature feature centric nature of this series in a way that, you know, we've all played lots of zombie games that evolve on the types of zombies you face and then special infected and all of these kind of like buzzwords around these types of games. But the last of us two does it in a way that is so much more terrifying than I think a majority of games that yeah. try to evoke the same thing. I mean, Harrison, for you, what were some of the more notable uh, infected specials, if you will, that you face in uh, part two? Yeah. So um, I was, funnily enough, I, I was looking through the art book, the first game. And if you look through that, uh, originally they had ideas for the infected that were a bit more monstrous, I guess. They kind of look like something you'd see in Dead Space. Mm, yeah. They look less recognizably human. Uh, there's an example of one infected where it's kind of like the the head is being dragged along by a spinal column and it's being moved. It's it's pulling the body along by two legs. It looks like something from the evil right. dead or <laughs> like a thing, yeah. right? It doesn't look like a person. Mm. And they changed it over time to we want these these infected to look more recognizably human because it kind of ties into the emotional themes that that game is going for. So they, they changed it, they made them less monstrous. And I think with Last of Us 2, they kind of moved a bit more towards that yeah. whole yeah. let's go nuts and make these things um, more disgusting, more gross. But it makes sense within the lore and within the universe because the idea with this uh, infection is that the longer you're infected, the more the fungus yeah. takes over. There's a bit where you find, um, in this game, where you find a document that explains that. It's like the stages of infection. Mm -hmm. So stage one, so runner, you just look like a person with a few like mushrooms sprouting <laughs> out your head. But then it's a stalker, and then it's a um, clicker, and then it's a bloater. And so it does that, and explains that to you, that the longer someone's infected, the worse it gets mm -hmm. and as far as we know the furthest stage is a bloater and then you have that knowledge and then you go down into the basement level of the hospital where they tell you this is ground zero so they've established that the as far as the timeline is concerned this is where all of the oldest stuff is and, and i think that's a really really masterful way of introducing you to this area where it's like if things get worse, if the if the stuff that was infected earliest is the worst, you're now going to ground zero. And then you go through that area and it's filled with stalkers. And I think the stalkers are in the first game. But they're basically just variants of runners. Yeah. Like they you can't detect them if you use the listen right. mode. Other than that, they're basically yeah. the same. In this one, they are much they move different. 
they graft onto the mm. walls, they look different, they use horrible sounds, they, they really make They're them terrifying in the And so you walk through, they are, yeah. <laughs> and you walk through that, um, that hospital, I guess, from my perspective, just assuming they're not going to add anything new mm. because as far as the, the law has established, bloaters are the, like, the end state. So I just figure you're going to walk through here. There's a bunch of clickers. There's a bunch of stalkers. And then you see that tear in the wall where something has just ripped through a door and like completely distended the corridor as it's charged mm. down it. And at that point, you kind of figure out there's something else here. And then you meet the Rat King. And that, for me, was probably the biggest surprise from the entire yeah. game, like more so than any of the narrative parts, more so than Jolda, more so than... Uh, the switch to Abbey, I had no idea that it was going to basically turn into a full-on horror <laughs> game for a section and introduce a boss yeah. fight, because there's nothing like that right. in the first game, like, and there's no indication there's ever going to be a new type of infected. And that whole bit is, from a gameplay perspective, if we ignore the narrative stuff, that has to be one of the highlights of the game, and it's a really, really well executed sequence with like the way it's all baked in this like red emergency lighting you're walking through there at that point with a flamethrower <laughs> kind of like channeling <laughs> just burning everything in sight it's such a cool sequence and um uh, yeah the rat king definitely stands out but also like i said the the um the changed up stalkers yeah i would also say the scars they're obviously not infected, but they're quite a frightening enemy. Um, the fact that you can't understand what they're saying because they communicate by whistles mm. is nerve-wracking. It's nerve-wracking to have an enemy that you don't understand and that you can't predict because you have no way of interpreting what they're saying to each I'm going to come back to the racking in a sec, but I was going to say, I'm glad you brought it up, that sequence when Ellie first encounters the Seraphites, which is essentially her cutting through a park in the city... And she just gets hit with that arrow after hearing a brief whistle. That sequence, of course, you get used to it because you fight them for then the next, I don't know, 10 hours of the game and whatnot. But that first section and a couple of the sections after that are so chilling that all you hear is the whistling and you just know immediately. You don't know what it's signifying, but it means that someone has probably seen you or they're reacting to the fact that you just killed a Seraphite or two or three of them. And that is... Yeah. T that instills in the player like that you're being hunted and that now you're facing against an intelligent enemy and of course you faced uh, yeah. human AI before and they kind of strategize a little bit or they take cover or whatnot. but the idea that the Seraphites reinforce that they're working as a unit rather than an individual taking cover and that you keep getting these audio reminders that like oh did somebody just see me or they just yeah. recognize that I had an impact on a firefight or on their numbers dwindling, I found to be incredibly disconcerting. Just in terms of like yeah, the lead up to that is so strong, I think. And I don't know that that necessarily ever really, I don't know if I ever got like used to that really, because every time I'd hear that whistle, yeah. it's terrifying. But then again, you know, bringing it back to the strength of the writing, there's a segment when you're playing as Abby in the aquarium when Lev runs off after fighting with Yara. And that's how Yara tries to reel him back in. And now it takes this whole new sort of, um, you know, it's emotional, but it's also very personable because it's mm. somebody, a sister yeah. trying to communicate with their brother and whatnot and bring him back into the fold and whatnot. And yeah. 
that just takes on a whole new level to every component. But in terms of the Rat King, though, like that is such a gleeful, like love of creature feature moment that is just so bombastic compared to the rest of the game. But at the same time, it works because in terms yeah. of from the outbreak day, the events of the first game to where we're at now, like it makes sense that something like that would actually be mm-hmm. in the world, right? If you fought something like that yeah, exactly. in the first game, and it's, I don't know how many years after Outbreak, but it's the type of thing where you feel like you're in it for two years, you're like, well, okay, we needed a boss here, so we have to have a big fucking abomination yeah. to fight. But it just feels so much more natural and representative of the world by this yeah, point. Exactly. That, yeah, it can be bombastic because it's been here since day one and we're, whatever it is, four... 10 years uh, past the point of whenever the uh, outbreak occurred, which is just, again, it's a compliment to the world building that really speaks to almost every facet of the game world and that with which you encounter yeah. throughout it. I think it also works much like the house Ben um, mm. bit from Resident yep. Evil 8 in the sense that it's one bit. If I was encountering a rat king, <laughs> yeah throughout the yeah. game or if there were a lot of these bosses it probably wouldn't feel as special but there's one mm. bit and that I think sometimes games can benefit from just showing a little restraint yeah. like that and just leaving it to one section because it makes that one section feel special yes I mean there's a reason that people talk about both these sections with such reverences because they are singular you know it's it takes place in one place one event that's it and as a result, they're memorable. It's like, um, there are so many cool bits in The Last of Us Part 2 in terms of enemy encounters, but some of them sort of la- overlap, you know, in terms of what they do. You know, mm-hmm. it's like they, they throw the same kind of enemies at you. The stalker thing to me gets worn out after the first time Ellie enc- encounters them. Yeah. In the I, like, uh, the opposite. Yeah. yeah. And after that, I just, I did, I did, just did not care for them. I, I just I hate that right. kind of enemy in a game. It's like when you you I know the idea. It's the you know the equivalent of like here's a section where you can't use your weapons. It but here it's here's an enemy that you can't use your traditional tools to scope out. You know like that yeah. Dead Space did Resident Evil's done. It. It's like I I and I don't like it in any of them. You know like that. I think the closest I've ever enjoyed that or found that disturbing on a consistent basis is probably Resident Evil 4 with the Regenerators you know where you know they are just constant. You, you dread the sound of the fuckers because the sound is so disturbing and you know how deadly they are and they don't show up till late in the game to be fair as well that's it that's what I was going to say with the Regenerators whereas these they're you know, sporad- they, they are. Yeah, they're sporadic throughout the game and <sighs> Yeah, I, I don't mind waiting for them to come to me so I can smack them. And that's about <laughs> it at that point. It just uh, it just doesn't... They don't feel like the threat they should after the first time you encounter them. Uh, and whereas, like you say, the racking thing is so unpredictable and so out of whack for the rest of it while still being so logical to the game mm-hmm. world that it's just this genuine, oh my fucking God, I walked into hell, you know, sort of thing like that. And the build-up to it where they're saying... That we don't know what the fuck's down there. That's just you know, day zero, all this. And before that, you've already been dealing with all this mad shit in the hotel trying to get there. You know, going down floor after floor after floor of like, okay, there's stuff here, stuff there. 
I don't have many places to escape to because the only place outside this room is a, like a girder across like you know, a, yeah. a hundred foot drop, you know. And you know, with Abby's own problems with that, it really accentuates the problem. And I, I think, like I was saying before, I think that is a, such a strong period of the game, you know, where you go from climbing up to climbing down those two buildings to the hospital and to the Rat King fight is literally the strongest point of the game in its entirety because of those encounters, because there's such a focus on facing, you know, monsters rather than people, you know, which a lot of the game focuses on people and it just, it, it kind of makes you shrug. It's Naughty Dog have kind of pushed that way a bit more in a lot of ways with uh, later games um, in Uncharted 4 and Lost Legacy pretty much do they they do away with the supernatural stuff completely and here it's like at times it feels like there's an apologetic thing of like well you know we've already established that you know there are monsters in this world uh, so we've got to have them because people, yeah, because they're completely sort of, yeah, they're completely incidental to the story yeah. in this one. Right. Like, apart from the fact that the first game wouldn't make sense without the effects, yeah. you could pretty much not have them in this, and it wouldn't make. No one even gets killed by no named characters get killed by. No, this is it. They are, they are just. It's Walking Dead syndrome. You know, it's like it gets to a point where it's like zombies are no longer really the point. That they are the thing in the background that sort of drives story points. You know, it's like. They'll drive you here, they'll drive you there to encounter a conflict, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, as you get into those later sections, they really don't matter. You know, it's like they're there, but much like the, you know, general human enemies, they are just obstacles to get to your main objective. And while that works thematically in Ellie's sense, in Abby's sense, it makes sense that they go for it a bit more because she's not in that same mindset that that Ellie is at that point. And it really does drive home that, you know, hey, hey, despite all this and all the problems going on, there is still a lot of stuff that we should be not touching. And they've established that this is a world where they're kind of just sort of making do and finding ways around the infected. Mm. And it's only the only reason they end up with them is because they have no choice, you know. And I like that about it, but it worries me that if they ever came back to it, or if the remake is true of the first game, that they're going to cut back again, you know, and focus more on the human stories. And it's like they're good and all, you know, and they really do accentuate these post-apocalyptic stories. But you need to have the threat of you know right. the, the infected in there yeah. because otherwise you're just telling any story. You know, it's like why have them? It's yeah, like the they are there. That threat. Yeah, that's it. And I think things like the Rat King, King section really do make that clear that oh no no we haven't forgotten. You know, we do love to have this section, but yeah. I was talking. Of Andrew King when we talk about Dying Light 2 and I was saying that my main worry about that sequel is they're going to forget what made that game terrifying at times you know when you got to the night sections and like it was really intimidating to go anywhere and they made it less intimidating at night on the outside 
but there were always consequences that could make it more terrifying. Like if you got caught by the wrong type of undead, they will alert all the rest and you are in a chase sequence you know, where you have to find salvation. Or if you go indoors in daytime, you know, you are going to face the worst of the worst because that's where they will live, you know, at that time of the day. And so it, it had the danger and it made yeah. those enemies a threat when it mattered, but you could avoid it like that. And that was a more interactive way of doing it, maybe. Whereas here, the story does try to push past the infected as much as it can but trying to remind you that oh no it's good because you know for a story about monsters you know most of the most extreme violence and shocking moments come from human on human stuff well i mean the most i would i would probably argue the most extremely like graphic moment in the game is when abby fights the sort of like hulking uh seraphite yeah. when everything <laughs> oh yeah and, yeah yeah, and she, <laughs> yeah like that part is is like torture porn yeah. levels of grizzly, yeah. but like you said, it's human on human. It's, that's nothing to do with the infected right. at all. Mm. In fact, there aren't, as far as I can tell, there aren't any infected at all. No, no that island section doesn't really have it because yeah. you know, that's the view of the island. You know, mm-hmm. they're away from it all, but you know, they still end up putting themselves in the whole battle yeah. by going to the mainland. But yeah, it's well. If, if anything, yeah. too, that section reinforces that you know that age-old adage of like man is the deadliest monster right and they dabble in the mm-hmm. idea of like where yeah. are all the women and children during that island assault they're in the bunkers and it's like well if the seraphite uh forces lose what's going to happen to the people that are in that bunker well we yeah. see what's going to happen to lev when isaac finds lev and abby it's like well he's about to kill a child so if yeah. the leader yeah. of the wlf is willing to do that like yeah pretty sure the rest of his forces are going to fall in line and deal with the rest of the seraphites that are defenseless i mean it doesn't take a, yeah, i mean it doesn't take much imagination to see how that plays out well yeah i mean you see it in um the point where abby gets like arrested if you will for uh, when she gets to the hospital because of going awol and it's like despite how the people involved feel about her and how much they respect her mm-hmm. they they live in fear of isaac and what he would do you know, so it just shows it's like it doesn't matter how loyal you are for, and for how long. It's like you can fall on the bad side of your friends and your colleagues just as easily, you know, and end up dead. So who are you really fighting for You know, at the yeah. end of the day? You know, before uh, before I lob my last uh, my last question to both of you, uh, we have to say I have to say that Isaac is uh, obviously voiced by Jeffrey Wright. And I can't think of a worse utilization of a fantastic actor than Isaac in this. And and not only that, but just a character that I feel like the game spends so much time talking about and prophesizing about. And yet he's in, I think, two scenes, two major scenes of the game. Yes. And it's never for more than 90 seconds at a time. And it's almost completely inconsequential other than just like, a two sentence summary in a script of like, well, there's this guy and he leads this group <laughs> yeah. and he's not a great dude. And that's the end of it. Like you're never yeah. really like explore yeah. that character anymore. He never says anything all that profound other than like, yeah, I don't know what to do about this. We just got to go to war. <laughs> like I could have came up with that. I'm not a tactician. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's like, um, I, I was saying this last week actually with the 
with the dying light, light two episode that there's a you know there's a big build up to this big general character you know throughout the whole game you know it's a character that's shown in one of the earliest trailers for that game as well and you meet right. him and like they build all this up oh he he runs a whole cabal of psychopaths and like, there's stuff that you've been fighting throughout the, and he's a nice guy and it's like oh okay and then he just offers you the, the, the nicest sort of reprieve from everything and like everything's going to be okay and you would honestly be a dick to make the wrong choice at that point because it's like he has offered you a very reasonable explanation there's no other way about it apart from you know the big logical black hole that is well, why do you employ psychopaths <laughs> it's like in this world but yeah yeah it, it just it builds it up to be something that he isn't you know he's like in a game that is this open world you yeah. know far cry-esque thing he's supposed to be the big villain and yet he's in it for all of like two minutes is a nice guy and then you, Do you mean at the end yeah and then you never see him again and that's it it's like right he's inconsequential to the story and yet he's in one of the earliest trailers for the game and they make a big deal about how much he controls the region that's it that's it. it doesn't matter what you do and me and Andrew were discussing this before it doesn't matter what you do the same thing applies he's still a nice guy he's not an arsehole to you no matter what you've done and it's just like well, what was the point in you it's like yeah. there, right. there were plenty yeah. of other characters in this game that would have been you know, substantial to be the bad guy and be your antagonist. And Isaac is so much the same in that you just think, why are you even here in this story? Yeah, it feels, so for the most part, like I, I understand lots of the criticisms that are leveled against this game. I don't agree with most of mm. them. And there are even things that we've talked about here where I'm like, I get what you're saying, but it doesn't really bother yeah. me. The only thing about this game that really bugs me is the fact that I feel like the first time a character dies abruptly is Jesse, and it's quite shocking mm. and it's quite impactful. They do it for Jesse, then they do it for Manny, then they do it for Yara, and then they do it for Isaac. And it starts to, after a while, characters, significant characters just getting shot in the head starts to lose its impact yeah. because it's happened once before. And it's particularly unsatisfying in the case of Isaac because when you do it to a villain that you built up, it just feels rather shocking. It feels anticlimactic. Yeah. And like you said, why? What was the point of it? Exactly. And that issue is compounded by the fact that in a game with with great performances across the board, you find you, you hire an actual recognizable like Hollywood actor. So you think, well, if this game is bringing out mm. such great performances for all its other characters if it's bringing out a Hollywood actor then it must be for a really really meaty substantial role and then nope <laughs> it's just a guy who delivers some exposition yeah. and dies yeah he, he's just in it for a bit it's um, yeah reminiscent again you know, there's so many games where you get that where a celebrity is in there and you're thinking afterwards you're thinking, if they weren't in it do you think the story might have changed or were they just in it mm. more because of who the actor was behind it? And again, I come back to Dying Light yeah. 2. Rosaria Dawson, as great as having her in that story, it feels like it was added after. And it ends up suffocating right. the story that it's actually trying to tell because it becomes her story too. And it only feels like that because it's Rosario Dawson. You know, that's it. 
Yeah. And that, that annoys me about it. Well, that's like, uh, not to... I mean, I've already defended The Last of Us 2, so I guess I could <laughs> upset more people by def- by defending Cyberpunk for a second. But the one thing that you could not say that about, say, Keanu Reeves' role in Cyberpunk, like, he is 100% integral mm. to that entire game. He's utilized throughout. And if you're going to get just one big name celebrity, then. Make him use it. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> well, this is the thing with The Last of Us Part 2, where it's like. Let's say that uh, Isaac was not actually still alive. Let's say he died from a bite a year ago and they had basically yeah. created this character, the idea of this person that is their leader that's still alive, but then in actuality is not. Like the Scar. Yeah, like the yeah, Scar, yeah. exactly, like the Martyr. I mean, you could have, and if anything then, to your point, Harrison, that would have bolstered this idea of uh, manipulating messaging or in the case of the scars like manipulating or perversing like religion in a sense to meet one's own ends and things you could have had that same parallel with the wolves in that well he's been dead for years yeah and at one point he was like let's coexist but this is the root of why there's so much conflict and why the truces mm-hmm. keep falling through i mean great again he's in so little of the game that it's not completely offensive to it to his talent, but at the same time, it's like, why even include him to begin with when so much of the dialogue yeah. is spent talking about him? But I don't know. I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of a, a, a small example of like this game yeah. at times in the sense that this is very much an epic, I think, in terms of like both sides and the parallels of that story and whatnot yeah. and just the length of it and the scope of it. It's a fault of what is a story that sometimes bites off more than it can chew, unfortunately, but it doesn't end up being one of my major faults with the game, really. Yeah, um, it's, it's more that he's just I, not memorable uh, yeah. as a person and a character, despite right. supposedly being so integral Pivotal, to... Yeah. Yeah, to yeah. I, think what, I think what they were probably going for is that at that point, the entire conflict, this massive conflict between Scars mm. and Seraphites is completely pointless right. and completely incidental mm. and Abby doesn't care about right. it and so as an audience member, you're not supposed to care <laughs> yeah. about it. Like, you don't even really find out who wins the war. Right. You, you can listen to like this radio broadcast afterwards where you can sort of hear a little bit about the aftermath, mm. but it never properly addresses like mm. what happened because to Abby it doesn't matter and therefore to you it shouldn't matter, but it's like you said so much time spent building this guy up that it just feels like a waste of your time I guess in terms of like before we uh, wrap up did uh, we skip over any super memorable moments for you guys that we didn't touch upon because I have one in mind but Harrison I'd like to I'd like to lead with you in terms of like a memorable moment from The Last of Us Part 2 that was a standout that we kind of uh, brushed over because again you know as we've almost been talking for two and a half hours and it's one of those games that you can't really encompass within the span of two and a half or three hours or potentially even four because yeah. it's just so expansive but for you a, a memorable moment whether it be a, uh, indicative of gameplay writing character development what have you the museum oh, okay. the birthday Ellie's birthday because that, that bit I suppose for the people who had a very um prescriptive idea of what the last was two should have been this is probably the bit that most represents that yeah. Ellie and yeah. Joel hanging out in the way that they probably envision but it's not because it's tinged with sadness because you know what happens after this you, you, you know it's presented to you after the fact not at the beginning of the game 
And I know that at one point uh, in the early development, uh, Neil Druckmann was, was sort of playing around with different ideas of how to structure this. And there was going to be a version of this game where a lot of that stuff that's in the flashbacks was kind of front-loaded and you kind of played through it more chronologically. And they changed it around because I think the, the main thinking was you can't bank on an audience investing so much time in something before you get to the main drive of the narrative. Like you need to get to the point which is Joel dying, get revenge early on. So they kind of shuffled things around. And the result of that is that this sequence that could have been a nice happy moment is actually really kind of sad, tragic moment because it's the last time that they really had that kind of father-daughter relationship because you do you do get there's the bit where you look for the guitar strings later but at that point she's already a bit she's grown a bit distant right. she's kind mm. of more and more doubting that he's telling the truth so it's a it's a different spin on the kind of like the left behind moments that you had um, before because it is kind of a happy moment it is kind of a sweet moment but it's not and the whole time you're you're replaying it with as Ellie, who's kind of now thinking back on this moment, knowing that it was all a lie. It does also have a lot of that stuff that I really like, because what we've already talked about, which is those moments you can miss. Like, you can do, like, cute little things where you put cowboy hat on a dinosaur, and there's all these kind of optional interactions that are completely missable, and in fact, some of them are quite hard to find. and I love that stuff, and it, it's 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 kind of a continuation of the thing that they did with the Left Behind DLC, and yeah, that that bit stands out to me as one of my highlights of the game, alongside the racking and uh, in general, the the last scene of the game as well. Yeah. That scene mm. on the porch, oh. I think, if that scene on the porch didn't land, oh I think a lot of the other stuff that comes before it might not have paid off, but they nail that ending. So yeah, those are the bits that stand out. Before going back to the museum section, which is my f- probably the most memorable moment for me from that narrative standpoint but i mean fuck that that final the game ending on that is so heavy to me in a way that you know it makes again you know for the realizations about joel and about ellie and what she was becoming and what she almost became and then taking a step back from fully becoming that like that end scene and again talking about playing with the perspective shift and everything like that and messing around with the timeline and things like that to realize that all of this has happened and all of this ordeal has occurred and they were on the mend, it makes that so much more heartbreaking. Yeah. And obviously intentionally so, but it just, yeah. it adds another layer to these characters and having that realization at the last moment and then to Neil's point about how heavy some of these moments are where nothing has to be said. And then it goes from that moment to then Ellie just leaving the house and you're still in the room where mm-hmm. she was playing the chords. You can see clearly like, the physical cost of this journey and that she lost fingers. But then of course the realization that she's coming home to an empty home, is she going to go to Jackson? Is she going to go start a new life somewhere else? Try to find, I don't know, another settlement or something like that. But going back to like the museum trip, it's that realization that, and again, to Neil's point as as is usually the case, cause he makes so many, but uh, to his solid point about like, Joel not being a good person, but we've seen that he is, you know, he himself is on the mend in terms of trying to live the life of a righteous man for the remainder of his life in that, you know, taking care of this child and whatnot and fostering essentially for the one he lost. 
but it's such a genuine moment of emotion from that character in seeing that this is a moment that he was deprived of with his own daughter and the care and the love that's felt in that through so many little moments. And, you know, it hits you, of course, when he they get into that uh, the shuttle pod in the museum and whatnot after, you know, playing Ellie jumps off a dinosaur and she, like proclaims I'm on a motherfucking dinosaur and putting the cowboy hat on him and the dinosaurs and these cutesy moments. It's followed up by like a moment that could only be possible from two people that know each other so well, better than anybody else. And that they get in the pod and he gives her the tape and she listens to the shuttle launch and she starts to visualize it basically. And that's how in the moment. And of course it is something that only somebody that knows her as only a father could or a surrogate father could is just such a moment of honest love between two people that are, you know, they're actually not related and whatnot. And they have that foster a child parent relationship, but then also like giving her the uh, emblem or the badge afterwards. Oh, yeah, that's, that'll, that'll that's been on her backpack for the entire time up until that point, you've been playing the game. And I didn't realize that until like an hour afterwards, I was like, just being dumb the first time I played it and being like, what the, what is, what is this? And then realizing, and it just, again, hits you with this idea that like anybody you meet to live in this world, you can't let go of a certain portion of the past in a way that has to be significant. And it could just be that like, Oh, it's an emblem, but there's so much history between these people. And the relationship is explored in a way that feels so genuine that it's not just, oh, she's got a, an emblem. It's like, that was a gift from somebody that understood her better than anybody that is still alive in this apocalyptic hell that they're both in. Yeah. And you just made me, I didn't even really think of this until just now, but you you also just raised the point that like, about knowing those characters knowing each other. And it's not just those characters knowing each other, it's also the writers knowing those mm-hmm. characters really well. And it's just kind of hit me how absolutely insane it is that there are some people who will say that like, Neil Druckmann and the team didn't understand who Joel and Ellie were when they took when for a start Mm. like they created them but also when they took like such nothing lines from the first game like there's just a bit in the first game where Joel asked um, Ellie what she would want to have been if the world was the way it used to be and she says like I don't know maybe an astronaut and they take that one line and develop an entire scene of it a scene about it in this it's crazy to me that someone could think that they know these characters better than the people that made yeah. them um, and that scene is a really good example of it well, yeah or that they took these characters in a way that wasn't faithful to the way that they were portrayed in the original which you know is is nonsense yeah. in and of itself because it's just like well hey who are you to challenge that but also yeah. <laughs> As you know, additionally, like I have complaints about maybe the length of this game. I think there are portions that could have been condensed mm-hmm. to get further to the point of like the overall arcing and whatnot of characters and things like that. But at the end of the day, to try to undersell any section like that or a flashback section like that, it just it is it's not only strengthens the characters and our understanding of them in the world, but of just that no matter who these characters were, it's understandable that people like myself and I'm sure you guys to a certain extent like how you can fall in love with these characters and care for these characters and whatnot because the groundwork is the foundation is not only there but again taking seemingly innocuous bits of dialogue and then stretching it into a sequence that takes something that's seemingly a throwaway and it makes it 
one of the most yeah. central parts of the experience is, you know, that's uh, that's a rarity, it seems, in a lot of games. Mm. You know, Not to say others haven't done things yeah, like yeah. that, but this is still certainly a, uh, a, a high point in that regard. And it's a game that, you know, I every time I finish this game, even I think this is my third playthrough of it, but it's the type of thing where it's like, as soon as I finish playing it, I have to sit there and I probably go back and listen to the soundtrack. And then it's the type of thing I can't not think about for at least the rest of the week or the next couple of days because it just, you know, it hits like a ton of bricks in a way that so few games I find do. <laughs> Even, you know, faults withstanding, it's, uh, it's a remarkable achievement in and of itself. I think one of the things that really stands out to me, especially about the game that we haven't brought up in the ending, is that... It features one of those things I love about any medium, which is it's abrasive. It doesn't go for closure mm-hmm. for either character. Yeah. You know, it you know, as much as there is this big decision that Ellie makes in, in sparing Abby, it comes too late for it to matter mm-hmm. in a way. And sure, Abby survives and maybe her and Lev go off to find what they were looking for. You don't know. Maybe when Ellie goes back, she finds what she needed and maybe she does get forgiveness from Dina and gets to be in that family. But you don't know. I love that. Just, yeah. I, I think there was a, a podcast, wasn't there, where they were talking about this and Druckmann and, and Coast was speaking about the idea that, no, you, the Hollywood idea is that you have closure, you must have closure. And here it just feels more human to just sort of leave it in the middle yes. of their stories you know it's like no people's stories don't end that way they, right. they, life continues on Unless, and there is otherwise you could just go on forever and ever and ever and much like the first game you leave it in a way that says you could leave it here and never come back and it, you've got everything you want out of it but you have that little bit of wonder to you and but if they were to go back there's something there's something there you could hook onto and build a legacy on and that is a special way of doing things so many pieces of media especially in a blockbuster persuasion don't bother with that now they, they want the tease they want the hook for a sequel because money you know like that and Naughty Dog are in a very comfortable position uh, they can be confident enough to do this and so it, it's refreshing you know, to, to have that in a big budget video game, to have an ending that doesn't go for the stinger and doesn't go, oh, you'll want a sequel to this with all the, com- yeah, and too many things that we've seen go in with that confidence without ever really earning it, you know, and ultimately don't get that closure, ironically, that, that they are so crave as a result. So, yeah, it, it's perfect for this game to have that sort of like non-closure. Right, but also it further reinforces the fact that if they didn't put in the legwork to make you care about these characters, Mm. a lack of closure you probably wouldn't give a shit about, right? It's kind of thing where it's like, and you know, it comes back to the idea that the story that the player or the viewer creates in their head is ultimately going to probably be more satisfying at the end of the day in terms of that, where it's like, it's, it's more satisfying that we get to wonder what these characters end story or end goal is now. Because yeah. we actually care about them. Whereas if you're if you're told based like if Ellie went to the house, she play, finally tries to play the tune that Joel taught her, which she can't fully play now because she's missing two of her digits, which was the 
a physical cost, let alone the emotional cost and, you know, the relationship cost that that finally seeing the end of that journey took. At the end of the day, if she found a note from Dina that says, when you figure it out, come find me in Jackson, like that doesn't have the same ending. Like Mm. having a having a more significant or a full loop of closure to that. It's like, I don't want to be told really. I would rather be left to wonder because again, for the examples I gave, it could be any number of things she decides to do. Who knows if this actually was the solace that she needed to go back to Jackson and find Dean and rekindle things. Maybe she's venturing into the woods because she doesn't know what else to do now or something like that. And I think that that furthermore speaks to just the complexity and the gray area of these characters that Harrison spoke on. Um, but yeah, I, again, yeah. A, uh, a masterful piece of storytelling that isn't without its issues. But at the end of the day, I mean, it it sticks with me, at least very, like so few games do. Yeah, it, it's ultimately just it has so much to say and so I much agree, to debate yeah. going into it, however you feel about it. And that's been one of the most fascinating things about it for me is that I, I've seen so many different takes on it and insightful takes uh, and criticisms of the game that really open it up you know I, I really enjoy that about this game that, that there is a critique there that is based on more than you know I don't like this system you know that sort of thing which you know I mean that's not really that's yes. not really a critic yeah. thing necessarily that's more of a you know a fanboy war sort of thing and yeah mainly just because it, it's not like the rest of the games that ironically you know The Last of Us and its success really did just breed this blockbuster you know critical darling thing that made Sony sort of make that ground up on Microsoft and, and become the market leader um, it, but you know it's now the curse that makes everything they do kind of safe as a result uh-huh. This worryingly feels like a last hurrah in that regard. I, I really, yeah. I mean, just yeah. This is it. it. It does feel like we're going to end up with nothing like this the next time we revisit this this franchise, whether that be a remake or a yeah. third chapter. It, I, I just don't see it. Yeah, especially with the people involved at the top that have left and are not going to be involved. And just the consolidation of, of different areas of the company. Yeah, I, I, I think in time people will look back and see this as that, as this last big, you know, like freedom push. Mm-hmm. You know, this and you know, I know, I know it's now no longer the exclusive, so to speak, that it was. But Death Stranding was another example of just like Sony saying, "Here's some money, do what the fuck you want," you know, like that whatever you want literally and we will back it to the hill like that and they did and both are rewarding experiences in very different ways because of that because they gave authors the the license to take their teams into new and fresh places and to to do things that are outside the safe zone hmm. and it, it, yeah. yeah and so as a result they're controversial games as a result and that's why you get people support stuff like uh, days gone over say this game because that game despite its really really big flaws yeah. gets um, 
a free pass because it's safe and dependable and does a lot of the things that people enjoy out of games, which is fine if that's what you want out of a game and you don't expect anything else. But if you're wanting something to be challenging and be divisive, this is the kind of experience you kind of hope that the money's spent on like that. Whatever you may say, think, feel on the game itself, critical or not, it does that. You know, I'd much rather that than a safe, polished, open world game that is much like the last one with a few new bells and whistles because that just feels like we're back in the late 90s, early 2000s of like just sort of, oh yeah, okay, little bits of progress are fine. You know, we, we've moved beyond that. And, and with the budgets yeah. going around, I get that there's a risk to doing that, especially for Sony who can't really you know, sort of throw the money around that warrants, but yeah i i hope we get to see a bit more of this sort of thing in the future i really do but it does seem less and less likely at the end of the day you know we at least have gotten experiences such as this yeah. that we could we can be hopeful for more in the future but at the end of the day it's the type of thing mm. where be happy that we we have this and that it's something we can revisit and you know you never know in the future they, they keep drumming up these remasters and remakes and things of that like you can get a whole new generation to experience something and then maybe that will propel them to try to do some sort of continuation but uh harrison as always it's a pleasure to have you on a safe room to talk horror no uh, it's, it's a pleasure to go on I'm, and i'm sorry that i probably rambled on and on and on about documents and <laughs> <laughs> there's been plenty of rambling on uh, on both sides of the sea in terms of yeah, yeah, like... <laughs> just happy to have somebody on that's as passionate about uh about horror and games and you know specifically the last of us part two is neil and i are thank you for listening to another episode of safe room please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform and for updates on the show follow us on twitter at safe room pod thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next week